Hey, my friends, it's Deacon Charlie Echeverry here. I wanted to give you a special intro to this episode with my friend Patrick Coffin. Patrick, for those of you who don't know, has been a Catholic media personality, if there is such a thing, um, for the better part of a couple of decades. Uh, In fact, most notably, he was the host of the Catholic Answers live radio show for a number of years. And he is, in the time that I've known him, among the most uh, interesting, educated, um, articulate people that you can come across. And he's an incredible conversationalist. He left Catholic Answers several years ago and went off on his own to kind of build his own media presence and personality. And he's done so with some success. A couple of years ago, he got at cross purposes with the rest of the Catholic media world, or a big chunk of it anyway, when he started speaking in a very outspoken way about a couple of things. One was his views on Pope Francis, and the other one was his views on COVID. Now, I'm going to let, I'm not going to address the COVID one. And in fact, we don't get into COVID on this show at all. It's among the few things we actually don't talk about in what ended up being an over two and a half hour episode. So, you know, buckle up. But um, we did talk quite a bit about his views of the papacy. And famously, just a short while ago, Patrick actually published a video that had a very provocative, and the content was very provocative as well, but a very provocative title. And it was Seven Proofs That Pope Francis Is the Antipope, or Francis is the Antipope. Now, when this happened, because Patrick's brand or persona had been one of you know, associated with things like Catholic Answers, there were kind of shockwaves in the Catholic media establishment um, when this video was published. And Patrick in it laid out a number of views that are his opinion of why Pope Francis is not the actual Pope. Now, this is something that uh, has existed in church history in the past, where there have been claimants to the throne that were not the legitimate Pope, and there have also been anti-Popes, a number of them throughout history. So from a historical perspective, this is nothing unusual. To make that claim about Pope Francis is something obviously very noteworthy. Um, And for the record, it is not something that I agree with, nor a perspective that I subscribe to. Nevertheless, What ended up happening was a lot of the Catholic media commentators, um, you know, people who have podcasts and shows and other people who are known for their um, uh, illustration of the Catholic faith in kind of a professional way, began to create responses to Patrick's video. And they would kind of break them all down and dissect every argument that Patrick was making to point out the fact that he was incorrect in his assumption. And on one side of that, that's helpful and good because I happen to agree with them that Patrick is incorrect about his conclusion that Pope Francis is an anti-Pope. Nevertheless, what I noticed, and it really struck me, was that none of these commentators or shows actually had Patrick on to discuss it himself. They were talking about his argument and dissecting it and refuting it without the benefit of actually bringing him on to discuss it. Now, you can imagine that they probably went through a thought process whereby bringing him on, that could actually open themselves up to criticism. And they maybe didn't want to take the heat. And I understand that. Maybe there were other reasons why that didn't take place. But it really struck me that Patrick had never been invited into these different forums to share what he thought and to give his own sort of explanation. So... Anyway, fast forward to the recording of this episode. So it it turned out that Patrick uh, was in Los Angeles and we had an opportunity to meet. 
And so we decided to, you know, in a very casual way, unrehearsed, unstudied, normally I research episodes and have a little bit more, um, you know, homework done on the guests. But in this case, I've known Patrick for a number of years, and I thought we could just start recording and have a conversation about everything. We did it um, in the evening, later in the evening. We smoked a couple cigars as we did it, um, and we had a long-ranging conversation about all kinds of things, from comedy to um, sleep apnea to, obviously, his views on Pope Francis. And so I'm issuing this intro as a way of a sort of a brief disclaimer. And there's two things that are specific uh, in this disclaimer that I think it's important for folks who listen to the show to know. Number one, I really value the idea of different perspectives. And by valuing the idea of different perspectives doesn't mean I value any given perspective specifically. So you shouldn't read into Um, you know, Patrick being on the show and the views that he espouses as somehow being my own. They are not. I make that very clear on the show. And Patrick knows that. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I think that we as a church need to be much more open about creating forums where people can come and exchange ideas in a respectful way. And that we can have a conversation with people that we disagree with and still not discard them in the process, which is something that sadly happened to Patrick um, throughout this ordeal with his thoughts on the papacy. He has been uh, uninvited, blacklisted, canceled, if you will, uh, from a number of different uh, venues and sectors because he shared his views um, uh, about the papacy. Now, you can also say, hey, well, you made your bed lie in it. And that's also true. There are consequences to the things that we say, and we have to live with them. But I really think that it's unfair to uh, discard someone entirely on the basis of something that they opine without giving the benefit of actually explaining their position and sharing with them your position, particularly if it's opposed to their position, as mine is in this particular case. So anyway, I hope you enjoy it. But if you are um, somebody who is rattled by discussions um, that are... Uh, sort of out there on the fringes or that kind of thing, you may want to skip this episode. And if not, um, you know, take a listen. See if there's something that you pick up and uh, and share it if you think it's worthwhile as a way to advance the notion that we should have spaces and places and forums to actually discuss varying points of view and do it with respect and do it with brotherly love because that is what the gospel calls us to. Enjoy. Patrick Coffin, welcome to the show. Long it's, time coming. It's good to be had here. It's a little sir. nerve-wracking for me, too, because you're like a professional at this. I'm like a professional, but not really a professional. <laughs> I have that? theater training, and I project the appearance of professionality. Well, you do and I make well. up words like professionality. By the way, you know you and I have known each other for 15 years, almost. Is that possible? Didn't we meet in 2009? I just saw a t-shirt that says, it feels so weird to be the same age as old guys. And that's, that's me. Does wow, it feel like fit, 15 years? No, I mean, 2009 at that gala, that Catholic yeah, Answers Gala. Just down the road near yeah, LAX. Yeah. I cannot, I refuse to believe that. That was, wow. unless that was in 2009, but I think it was somewhere in that vicinity. 2009. 2009 was Or my, even, even if it was 10, that's still 13 years ago. It was nine or 10. I started at Catholic Answers in February, 2009. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty soon after. It was our, they the, started first, those the first fundraiser. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. I still remember that. I had the kids... Uh, the kids use the pallets because there was an auction. Do you, do you remember this at all? There was this I do remember it because 
your wife won an Apple product. She did win an Apple product with like 10 years worth of your talks and Jimmy Aiken and all these guys. If she's that, having problems sleeping, we just put her straight out. <laughs> the funny story yeah. is that that iPod, it was an iPod, by the way. So this is definitely, <laughs> this is like early Apple it's days. It's like an eight track. It is, at, le- at least at this point. But that thing, I put that in the car, like plugged it in. I had this car that had this uh, iPod connection to it. And it became, it literally replaced my radio. All I did was listening, listen to, and I randomized it. So it would just play the next random thing. Mm-hmm. So it would go back to like 1999 episode of Catholic Answers, mm-hmm. then a 2008 one. So the host changed, right? It was you, yeah. it was Jerry. Jerry Usher, the founding Jerry host. Usher, not to be confused with Usher, yeah. the pop singer mm-hmm. from the 90s. It happens a lot because they all I'm sure that. it does. They look alike. But, um, but I got a hell of an education from that iPod, man. It was crazy. Kind of like an encyclopedia in your, in your pocket. Mm. Um, when, you, when you hit every imaginable objection to the claims of the Catholic faith answered by people for whom that's all they do, mm. it's, it's going to have an impact. It's going to have a kind of a cumulative effect. And of course, it's not the what, it's the way, as all married people know. It's because um, to, to this day, I'll, I'll get recognized or if, if I'm finished speaking at some event, uh, someone will inevitably say something very kind and flattering about my ability to convert people. And I always humorously say, oh, can you, can you give me one example? Now, there's only one example that I have where something that I said seems to have had a change in someone like a on the conversion? air. Yep. Oh, on the air. From bitterness to, I got to get myself into a Catholic church. That was really? with, yep. That happened with the late, great father, Andrew. Um, he was a, I'm drawing a blank on his name. He wrote uh, the book on Fatima Today. He was a confrere and co-founder with, of the CFRs with Father Benedict Rochelle. Father Andrew, oh, often uh, mistaken for him. Yeah, no, that's, uh, what is his name? I actually, I took a flight one time that he was on from LA to New York. Um, it's an Italian, Italian name, right? I the, think so. Yeah. Boy. Uh, mm. Again. Father Andrew, I'm sure it'll come back. I'll look it up. That's what we have computers but for. He, this guy named David was mm-hmm. very, very bitter. You Catholics are crazy. Uh, because the, the episode that father was on was on uh, the spiritual works of mercy. Mm. One of which is praying for our Apostoli. beloved. Andrew Apostoli. Very yeah, good. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah very good. Yeah, I should have got with the Italian mnemonic cue. Took me a minute there. Yeah. Nomen est omen. Andrew Nomen Apostoli. Omen. By the way, my search, uh, the, 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 the search sort of meta tagging for me to get to that was Andrew Grishel father. And oh. then the first thing that came up was a video with father Grishel and father Apostoli. Makes sense. I'm sure there's a By lot of patience to do that. But I want to hear this conversion. Though. All right. So, so you converted Father Apostoli to the Catholic faith? He was faith? very fallen away terribly. Okay. Despite his appearances on EWTN and his books. He's passed now, right? Or no? Yeah, he did. Yeah. He died a couple yeah. of years ago. Um, mm-hmm. uh, truly legit saintly priest. One of my favorite guests. His co-founder, Father Benedict Rochelle, was the second hour guest of my very first audition show in December 2008. Everything that could go wrong with my first hour went wrong. It was a Murphy's Law Festival. I, I can't even, the first caller was some guy from Sacramento who dropped an F-bomb in a reference to Howard Stern's genitals on the first call of my- Did you guys have a dump button like they we do? We did. It's so funny you mentioned the dump button. I won't mention names, but the current, the, the, at the time, the sound engineer uh-huh. uh, was look, looking at me 
as this guy's going off script and it makes a reference to Howard Stern's genitals. And I looked at him and I pointed and he nodded and I didn't know what he was doing. And I'm not even sure why I was pointing or where. Right. That was the dump button. I pointed at the dump button on his deck. I didn't even know there was a dump button. You didn't expect there to be one though? No. Huh. When you're in the moment and you're nervous, because I could hardly breathe before the on-air light came on, I this drove is down. An audition or this is the this first is my show? audition? No, no. I, this right. is my. I know everyone but, in the building's but, listening. Right. It, at that time, we were on seventy different stations, and uh, it was raining that day, which means Southern Californians lose lose the ability to drive. And I was, I thought, oh, I'm gonna. I was pulled over by the police. I got mm. a ticket. I wasn't late, but it was nerve wracking to get there. And so the first call was a prank call. I dealt with that. I said, oh, okay, that's great. So move on to the next caller, blah, blah, blah. The second hour guest was Father, was Father Groeschel and he was in Dobbs Ferry, New York. And 15 minutes before the hour was up, Father Groeschel says, well, Patrick, I'm here. They want me to go upstairs to do some kind of blessing at the dinner. I got to go. It's uh, great to talk to you again. The do, 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 da, da, da. He says goodbye, click. I'm looking at my watch. It was like 15 minutes 15 left. minutes of dead air. What? Ran out of breaks too. So you just had to, what you do? I said. You're good at that though. I didn't know I was good until I, until I opened my mouth. I didn't know I would be a natural at this until I started speaking when the on-air light came on. I just felt like John Wayne in the saddle. I can't explain it. My nerves vanished and they never returned. Mm. I just felt like. Were you like, riffing on some of the stuff that had come up in the previous calls or continuing a theme? Like how did you, uh, what, what was your I, material? Good question. I said, thank you so much for your priesthood, Father Grishel. Here's the number, 800, blah, 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 blah. I want to hear your Father Groeschel stories. Something he wrote, a book he said, oh, said something genius. that really touched you. Yeah, as soon as I got the number out once, all five lit up and oh. I sailed to the end. How good did that feel? I felt those, great. When those lights It felt out. great. And I, I, in that moment, as I'm kind of grinning to myself that I've saved my own batissimo here because now I'm letting the callers tell me their stories, I thought to myself, this could happen every episode. If you want this job, you can't let this rattle you. And I think the fact that so many things went wrong and I handled it pretty well, I think that gave me an edge. Mm. I was up against 10 auditionees, one of whom had 10 years live broadcast. I had zero. I'd never heard the show because the then Cardinal Archbishop, who shall remain nameless, although it is Roger Mahoney, mm -hmm. he, he didn't want the show on in his diocese. There was no English speaking Catholic radio. So another reason why I didn't want to listen to any other host auditionees is that if I listened to someone I thought was not great, I'd get overconfident. And if you listen, if I listen to, to a superstar, I would like, be insecure. I'm never going to make it. Yeah. yeah. So I just kind of played How'd you even get it. the audition? You just called um, up or somebody recommended you? A writer named Kevin Aldrich on mm -hmm. the last day of November of 2008 sent me a one-line email. You'd be perfect for this. I opened it up. Host position. I'd met Jerry Usher at a Catholic family conference in Long Beach. I knew about the show. I only heard the show once when I was giving a talk in Omaha, Nebraska. No, I was I was in Omaha, Nebraska for a different reason, I think. But it was available on the AM station. Mm -hmm. And this is the first time I'd ever heard English speaking Catholic radio. I didn't know this, this tons and tons of Protestant stations. I'd never heard Catholicism talked on the radio. Uh, in English. Talked about. Nope. Never. Yeah. Was there Spanish at the time? There was El Sembrador in LA. Got it. Okay. Uh, yeah. Pero mi español es muy malo. Muy malo. Yeah, muy mm -hmm. malo. So I threw my hat in the ring. And within a couple of days, I had the, the then director, Jan Wakelin, marvelous lady, despite her taste in hosts. 
she uh, said, hey, why don't you come down and fill in for Jerry, which was a euphemism for uh, we want you to audition. So um, I did. And I, I was overthinking what this, what this would be like as I was driving down there. Right. And I began to mentally picture hundreds of people in their cars all over the country. And I started imagining how big the audience is that's, that's going to hear everything I say. And I can't put the horses back in the barn. Mm-hmm. Once they leave your mouth, you're going to lay a turd or it's going to be great or it's going to be eh. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like a homily. It's like a homily. Except the different... Being, Without yeah, a dump button. I don't get one of those. You don't get a dump button. You also, with radio, you don't get feedback from the radio audience. Mm. I'm used to speaking in public where you get feedback, there's eye contact. Yeah. And you can kind of tell if you're clicking, you know, there's that flow, For that sure. kind of mysterious ebb and flow between you and them. But with a radio studio, it's just the the microphone and your beverage and you're speaking out into the void. Were there, I mean, and, and the questions that come in give you some feedback, obviously, because somebody's listening and they've got questions about what the guests may have said before or something you said earlier. But is there like a moment where you wish people would stop calling? And you could have a different conversation with a guest or a deeper conversation. You see what I'm saying? Yes. And, I, and I'm juxtaposing this against what we're doing now, which is mm-hmm. a podcast that has no clock, that has no break, that has no need to be anywhere. We're about to smoke some cigars, which is a first for the show, by the way, in the studio. Um, mm-hmm. And what's cool about that is you can go kind of deeper and down some rabbit holes and explore. And it doesn't work for everybody, but it's not as formatted. It's not as fitted to uh yeah you see what i'm saying and like if if the calls are constantly coming in and that's the show the show is a call-in show then you get no respite from that like it's always happening was there ever a moment where you're like i just want that to stop and have a conversation with whoever the guest happens to be in front of me yes i found there was a balance to be struck between depth of one conversation and the fact that there are other callers listening in and want to get their call answered their question answered but as time went on, I began to have an unfair advantage over my guests, even PhD level, mm-hmm. even cardinals and archbishops, because I, my unfair advantage is I've heard every objection many, many, many times. I know nine different ways to answer all of them. So there were some awkward moments where I, I was trying to save the dignity of the guest, but also providing not only the caller, but everyone listening in. It's tricky balance. Mostly over time, Charlie, I started to. I started to wish that I could talk about things that were trending in the news instead of having a schedule that was done a month or two out in advance where I already knew everything that was going to be talked about weeks in advance. I wanted to start like talking about things that sure, are hitting Sure, what's going them. on? Yeah. yeah. Headlines. What's everybody talking about? What's trending? Yeah. So. The other thing is there's yeah. all, there's with every one of those call-ins, there's like this sort of peak and decay cycle. There's a question there's an answer and a resolution, and then you start again. So it's like question, you know, it, it just mm-hmm. has like a sequence. And if you're if you're going down a tributary that you think is interesting and you want to continue down that tributary, you kind of can't, right? Because the next question triggers this pattern mm-hmm. again. Yeah. Right? So you can't like develop it, at least not there. I know eventually Catholic Answers, while you were still there, launched other formats and things. Catholic Answers Focus. Focus, which kind of allowed you to go a little bit deeper in that kind of thing. And off the red meat, evangelical Catholic apologetics, like interviewing Kevin Costner or 
Newt Gingrich or Dean Kuntz or Sada Winter, the converted head of Femin. Uh, Sada, I would, she's, I mean, that was a very riveting conversation because her, her conversion was so dramatic and so public. Mm. Um, so that, that enabled me to go off the regular reservation and people were happy to do that as a, as a, almost like a palate cleanser. Yeah. When you're not, it's not Q and A about scripture and tradition. Let's talk about racism with Kevin Costner, who, who did a movie called Black and White mm. with Alicia, what's her name? Olivia Watt? No. Mm. I don't know. She was in The Help. Oh, okay. What's uh, her name? What's the name of the movie? The Help. The Help. Yeah, it's called The Help. I think she won an Oscar for that. Viola Davis, Viola Octavia da Spencer. No, Octavia Spencer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was my first out-of-body experience hosting was hearing Kevin Costner say something like, yeah, that's a good point, Patrick. And like Kevin Costner just said my name, dad, you know, yeah. do you want to go play catch from field of dreams, right? right. JFK. Um, I think Kevin, I liked him in all movies except for Robin Hood. I thought he was a terrible Robin Hood. I don't know. Just, I just didn't buy it. I didn't buy him as Robin Hood. I, I know Robin Hood has been done a million times, but I did. Wait a second. That wasn't a documentary. No, that was a real movie. It was fiction. That was a feature. <laughs> Like that other movie that, that people say was real, it wasn't a documentary, Phantom Menace. That was fake. Not a documentary. <laughs> is that a joke? <laughs> yes, just, it is. Okay. It's special effects, Jelly. There's no such thing. These are actors pretending. But I get the whole somebody who's big in the public eye and, and outside of the Catholic bubble. Yep. Sort of recognizing. Actually, him even coming on the show is interesting to me. Yep. Jose Feliciano. Musician. Uh, yeah, blind. Mm -hmm. uh, Feliz Navidad. This is a f fixture. Mm -hmm. um, really great guy. Dion, the Wanderer, at eighty-one, still cranking them out. He sounds like a fifty-year-old. Phenomenal. Who would pick the guest for that show? Is that you? Uh, mostly me. Yeah. Almost all me for the podcast. Uh, it was my brainchild. What makes her a good guest? What are you looking for? Like, what? What do? You, what's like? Oh, I can't wait for that conversation. Are there characteristics or That's things a, you're looking for? Excellent question. Um, I like people. I like overcomers. I like to talk to survivors and sages, and sometimes they're the same. So I, I'm one of the few people who interviewed Jordan B. Peterson four times. Jordan is both a survivor and a sage. How's he a survivor? Uh, because he- Survived he, his- he, he has been pounded into the ground so often by the full force of, of leftist media mm -hmm. elites and his own academic. He's now you know, at, at uh, about to lose his license because he expressed political opinions against the Canadian prime minister that apparently the powers that be in Canada don't like. Canada mm. is a, is a free speech wasteland now, yeah. almost a wholly owned subsidiary of the CCP. And, th and this is, this has no more stronger teeth than it does in academia that, that it's free speech for me, but not for thee. He's parlayed it into a lot of success though. I mean, he's landed on his feet. You could say, he has, I'm going to fire up my cigar too. Sure. Way, yeah. I think I'll do the same. Him. Okay. Uh, yeah, I would say Jordan has, has made mango juice out of his lemons for <sighs> mango milkshake yep. out of his lemons. Hang on one yep. second. Take a little break to, and he's on, he's on a journey as we all are. He's, I mean, he's a second away from being Catholic, I think in my mind. Yeah. I, I went full metal Catholic with him and my last sit down with him, got him to finish the sentence. I'm not Catholic right now because. Oh, that's I a think, great one. I didn't see that. What yeah. did you say? Well, uh, people can look it up. I think it's still on Rumble. I was permanently banned from YouTube. So some, we're going to talk about spotty. that too. Yeah. Um, he, 
he was, he's really into Carl Jung and Gnosticism. He's been marinated in Carl Jung for decades. I was going to make a joke. Sounds yeah. like, my, sounds like some of my formation classes. Oh, of course. I thought you were going to say, yeah, it was the young and the restless. Just in case the Archbishop is listening. Just kidding. Just kidding. No, but there the were, young, we had the young and the restless. The Jung and the Restless. We had a lot of Jung uh, information. Mm-hmm. He um, is very skilled at talking about the uh, archetypal meaning of scripture. Yeah. His Bible lectures are very interesting. You don't hear this kind of content from most preachers from the pulpit. But I, I turned it a little bit to the question of the historicity of things like the resurrection, which beyond whatever Jungian archetype and beyond whatever other world religion avatar of the dying and rising small M myth, you have to confront the revivified corpse of Christ and the fundamental miracle claim of the the Catholic faith. All Christians believe that Jesus was physically risen from the dead. And so what about that? Because that's, that's the concretized incarnational version of the abstract Jungian archetype. Mm. And that's, that's, that would let the conversation went in a different direction. He wasn't prepared to answer directly. I, I saw fair enough. there was, there was one very famous uh, panel discussion that he had, I believe it was in Australia or New Zealand. There's clips of it on YouTube and, and the clips that are on YouTube for the most part are the ones where, you know, he's owning somebody on the opposing sort of end of whatever the issue is that they're discussing. But if you watch the whole thing, there's this moment that doesn't get clipified as much where they do a kind of a rapid fire round to all of the panelists. And one of the questions is, do you believe in God? And what does that mean to you? Like it was, do you believe in God? So this may have been years ago because he's certainly advanced in that sort of area, Mm -hmm. but it's one of the only times that I've seen him not just being sort of pensive and thoughtful in his response. He He does that a lot. Like he'll, he doesn't mind silence. You ask a question and he wants to be precise in the answer. So there's mm-hmm. that, you know this better than anybody because you've interviewed him, but it wasn't that it was discomfort. It was awkwardness. And he actually said that eventually when he came out, when he surfaced to answer, he said, I don't like that question. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting. I don't like that question. And then the interviewer was, and it wasn't even an interview. It was like the host with a bunch of panelists, but, and she was like, why? And he said, I just don't like it precisely because at that point it is a binary thing. Do I believe in God? And if so, what does that mean? And he wasn't prepared to say that he does. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure he's come a ways, but it's one of the only times I've seen him just have nothing to say, or at least feel like he has nothing to say that wouldn't in some ways box him in Mm -hmm. to something that would carry a lot of cost to it. And he was already bearing a lot of costs. And I I don't know. There was like, it just was weird. He's definitely had a, I would say, uh, an evolved approach to answering that question. And I think, I'm not talking out of school because it's public, it's on YouTube. His wife, Tammy, was diagnosed with what looked like terminal kidney cancer. Yes. And was visited in the hospital by a, a lovely woman born in China, who's an opus dei's uh, numerary. And she taught her how to pray the rosary. And in the middle of a novena, her cancer symptoms vanished and never returned. Mm. That's the kind of thing that doesn't compute with someone who's been marinated in young and biblical archetypes without an actual grace of God that seems to have, has, seems to have violated a law of nature. And I think it rattled him in a really good way. 
My last interview with him was February, 2018. And that summer he was on stage in Los Angeles with Dennis Prager at one of these Prager U forums and no context. He just turned the conversation to Catholicism. And he said, uh, I think Prager this is a jo- or Peterson. No, no oh, Jordan Peterson. Yeah. He said, I'm going to, I think this is a, a verbatim quote. He said, Catholicism, he, he said uh, he was in Germany and the great cathedrals of Europe, Chartres, and he saw a labyrinth and he said, walking in there was very moving to him. And he said, I'll tell you, Catholicism, despite its eeriness and its mystery is about as sane as people can get. And he's fighting Airtight. back tears. Mm-hmm. He's fighting back tears. And I think he was trying to assimilate God as idea with God as someone who's has personally acted person. in the what in the life of the person most precious to him. Mm. I think it had an effect. She's very open about it. That and the and uh, his daughter has also a similar. Michaela journey. seems to have had some kind of conversion. Yeah. Um, her husband, also named Jordan, I think is an evangelical Christian. Mm. Um, I I like I call them outsider insiders. Someone who's outside the official Catholic fold, but has this sense of where true north is. Yeah. He's, he's one of those. In some ways, Ricky Gervais is. He's my dream Ricky Gervais candidate for- an absolute a, genius. I have a 2000 word invitation to come on my show. I'm about to publish at patrickhoffin.media. And uh, he's d- on it? No, I'm, it's directed to him. Oh, directed to him. I'm going to him. ping him on Twitter until, until he arrests me or until he comes on my show. It's called Afterlife and the Coming Conversion of Ricky Gervais. Have you seen Afterlife? Uh, the Netflix show? Yes, but I abandoned it very early. Like, okay. And I don't remember the circumstances around my watching it. I may have been on a plane or in a hotel room or something. I just slow I, opener. I, did, I didn't latch on. It's a slow opener. Yeah. He asks some very beautiful, pointed questions about life and meaning and suffering and death and loss. Well, he's searching big and, time. Yeah. yeah. And I, I don't think Ricky really believes his own atheism. I think it's a defense mechanism against an, a lot of family pain. Have you seen Derek? I have. His, I was just going to say Derek, I okay. did see. So he has, I've paid attention to a lot of interviews that Ricky Gervais has done. And he has returned to the theme of Derek as his hero a bunch of times, two that I can think of. And what I find interesting about that observation by him is that Derek as his hero reminds him of himself when he was eight years old. Yeah. He's the vulnerable childlike, mm-hmm. innocent, good, you know, uh, loved by many set upon by others, mm-hmm. maybe inappropriate in some ways. Um, yeah, I could see that. Bart jokes in front of the queen. Totally. And just no yeah. filter, no sense of play, like, uh, you know, propriety in a yeah. very, the other side of the, the, mm-hmm. that eight-year-old equation is that in another interview or two, he describes the day he lost his faith. He's eight years old and he's coloring some kind of Jesus coloring book in his kitchen and his mother's there. His father was an alcoholic. His name is Jerry. Uh, last name is, I believe, Gervais, which is a French-Canadian name. And Ricky's older brother, Bob, bounds into the kitchen. Oh, what are you doing? coloring book of Jesus. And Bob says, you know, that's all crap, right? I mean, I'm paraphrasing. Bob is an atheist. He's 19. So much older. And Ricky's mother says, Bob, 
like, don't tell him Santa's not real kind of don't thing. Don't tell him Santa's not real. The fact that his mother stopped the conversation, but didn't pick it up with that's rude or Ricky, don't, don't interrupt his faith because we're, our families, I'm going to say Catholic, we're Christian of some kind because his mom gave him a picture of, of Jesus to, to draw, to draw mm-hmm. color in. Mm-hmm. But that was it. That's when he realized, oh yeah, mom doesn't want me to hear the truth. Mm. That there's no God and Jesus isn't isn't is like Santa Claus with with a, a white <laughs> a brown beard and less weight. Mm-hmm. And that set him off on the path that he's been on, though. But the downside of that path is all of the existential angst that then gets created around what is this all about, mm-hmm. the meaning of everything. That the um he he did two th- he he did is it called Ghost Town as well the the feature. Ghost Town feature film, yeah. The feature was Ghost Town. Um, and it all has a sort of similar thematic, right? There's this, and, and I'm not an expert on these films, but there is there is this angst, this idea of the kind of meaninglessness of things, how people generally are very coarse, they mistreat one another and kind of a little bit of what's the point in all Existential of this? Existential tension, angst, yeah. subsurface angst. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. like a that's like a driver in a lot of his more recent stuff that I've seen. My favorite Gervais stuff is, I mean, cl- clearly The Office is nearly untoppable. The British Office mm-hmm. extras, super just brilliant, unbelievable, skewering extras skewers celebrity culture by inviting select celebrities willing to lampoon themselves from Patrick Stewart to David Bowie, Kate Winslet. The David Bowie episode <laughs> may be the funniest, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Little chubby f- little loser. Chubby little fat man. <laughs> so good. Yeah. It is. It's a good show. Uh, so he's going to, you're going to send him a 2000 word invite every day until he arrests you or comes on the show. Yes. Yeah. And why wouldn't he, what else is he doing with his time? Sure. But I think he, I think what he, I think the foundation that he laid in extras against celebrity culture and, and the self puffery that he so masterfully, masterfully parodies led to his Golden Globes stem winder of a monologue. Oh, I'm in sure. In 2020. The, what made that so good is it was authentic. It was real. He was talking. Epstein, he's your friend. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's speaking from the heart. In that. Yeah. That's what makes it so good. Mm-hmm. Old Testament prophet sent right there. Mm. Truth, speaking truth to power. That last episode of Extras, for those that haven't seen it, that that's a, I think you can see that, well, certainly on BritBox, but I actually have, I'm one of the few who have a subscription to BritBox. Mm. I'm the one oh, right on. who has a subscription <laughs> to BritBox. Aren't you the guy who joined the church in Germany? I did, exactly. Exactly. Me and him. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see it. Somewhere else, I'm sure. Amazon, probably. I don't mm-hmm. know wherever you can get that stuff. But Andy Millman's the character. Andy Millman's a character. There's, uh, is there two seasons? I think maybe few up, or is it one season? There's like maybe eight or nine episodes total. I um, want to say that only. No, there's two seasons. Afterlife is the only three triple season show. I think. Well, he that's either, one of the differences between British TV and American TV. They don't like two seasons. Is it? They there's do. Like this like endless story arc with. Correct. It doesn't become a a very Brady at Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Part 72. Rocky 14. And then they have a Christmas special, of course. That's obligatory in a lot of these uh, British series. That's right. And the 
the um, Office Christmas special is very moving. It is very moving. The, and the, the, and the Martin Christmas, Freeman Dawn character thing is so beautiful. It is, yeah. Goosebump City. Yeah, and that's the thing with that with his comedy um, is that of course it's there's these ridiculous moments. There's the the characters that are ludicrous and preposterous, and then the straight people, right? The the straight mm-hmm. sort of normal humans. There's all that tension between them. There's a lot of impropriety, sexual and otherwise, but then there's real moments of of true tenderness, emotion, like life that, mission, life mission. Yeah. Yep. And that's different than our comedy. Our comedy here in the U S tends to be very on the surface. Like the, the whole time it's like, you know, every 90 seconds or whatever the rule is, there has to be like a laugh, right? Mm-hmm. Silence is terrible. The, the whole format for the office, right. Is, is would have never been invented in the U S this idea of, just panning and you hear the photocopier in the background making copies and yeah, awkward ambience. Awkward ambience. Mm-hmm. It's just, it would have never flown. It would have never seen the light of day here. It had to be something that was born out of British TV, but Ricky yeah. Gervais's brain. And David Brandt as anti-hero. You could do a PhD dissertation on that character. For sure. The, the clueless, utterly sad sack, unself-aware sad sack who doesn't even see his pitifulness. And as always flirting with the camera as if to, like he wants the, your sympathy, right? <laughs> what was the, um, the, the so David good. Brent, the, the, it was, he, he goes on the road. It was like, mm-hmm. what was it? He, it, it was, it wasn't the office, but it was a, it was a sequel to the office and it was called something else. I'm just forgetting it right now. It was like a season 2.1 follow-up where he's yeah, the it, subject of a documentary. Does he, does he meet the chubby girl in the bar? Yes. Yeah. He, on a date or something? What yeah. was it called? He's uh, mocking her because her photo's old, but his photo's like 1993. David, oh, Life on the Road. Life on the Road, right? David Brent, Life on the Road. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, no, amazing. Well, if you get him, holy smokes, I can't wait to hear that. That would be lovely. He, he's never really had- Four-hour show. I don't, I would love to. Um, it, would, it would break my longest episode with another Englishman named Milo Yiannopoulos. That was three hours, 52 minutes. Did you have to go to the bathroom during that? Uh, I had a Pepsi bottle. <laughs> no, <serious>? I didn't. <laughs> okay. okay. No, no, it was too, uh, I you think I it. think I prepped beforehand. I grew up in Nova Scotia going to Prince Edward Island every summer mm-hmm. and our dad would never let us stop. Mm. We got to get there. We stop, we could get out. It's 45 minutes. So your minutes. bladder is massive. It's like a waterbed <laughs> from all that training. 1973 called it once it's metaphor back. <laughs> yeah. You're right. I yeah. could use another metaphor more apropos. What is a meta or? Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, to hear that. But back to, back to Ricky Gervais's creative brain. I, 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 I wouldn't want to argue with him about God's existence. I would want to gently answer some of his more puerile objections that hosts like Stephen Colbert, they don't have an answer for. Kind of like, oh, who made God type questions. And I do think that his... I think his atheism is more of a hobby than a really well thought out worldview. It's also part of the brand too, which is what makes what makes it difficult when people are in positions like that because so much of it is attached. So mm-hmm. much of that that atheism, that antagonism to religion, all that stuff is built into his brand. So, and there are mm-hmm. people when they get into the celebrity status are very possessive of their brand. Every mm-hmm. little thing that can be that can change that is a 
strategic consideration, even if you do feel that way. Mm -hmm. And so, well, that'd be interesting. That'd be interesting. I think his conversion is going to have something to do with Archbishop Sheen. Mm. I said that in my uh, essay, in my invite to him. Um, Bishop Sheen was a very close friend of G.K. Chesterton. He sailed to his funeral in 1936, credits him with a lot of his writing style and way of communicating. Uh, Like Ricky Gervais, Bishop Sheen also won an Emmy. He was very comfortable in the glare of superstardom. 30 million listeners every Tuesday. Yeah, huge show. Massive. Do you think Gervais knows who Bishop Sheen is? Good question. Um, Maybe not. Travels in different circles. Maybe so. I don't know. I just watched the Sheen episode a few weeks ago in which he prophetically in February 1953 did a reading on his show Life is Worth Living of Julius Caesar, but he substituted Stalin and all of his henchmen for the characters in the Shakespeare play. And Julius Caesar was Joseph Stalin. Mm-hmm. And Stalin will one, will one day meet his maker and face judgment. And within nine days, he had a stroke and died. Wow. Even Snope said, yeah, that, ex- that happened. So Sheen, I think Even in many Snopes. ways, yeah. uh, I, I think Bishop Sheen is a, is a intellectual media prophet who's just, you read his stuff and it's like he wrote it last Tuesday for our day. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So Ricky Gervais, you mentioned Milo Yiannopoulos. Mm-hmm. To varying degrees, both people who've had some amount of controversy in their, in their lives. And so have you, mm-hmm. right? Recently, no, these last... No. no. These last couple Welcome of years. Welcome to Sarcasmaholics Anonymous. <laughs> no. <clears throat> One of the yeah. things that you and I talked about, maybe, I don't even know when it was, maybe a year ago, within the last year, mm-hmm. as you were going through a bit of a firestorm with some of this stuff, is that, you know... I bemoan the fact that a lot of Catholic media does not engage enough with perspectives and points of views that may be dissenting, um, or at least doesn't create a forum for those conversations. And that that was sad because you had run afoul of a lot of different... uh, you know, established sort of narratives, at least by some people's standards. Mm-hmm. And you can tell the story of exactly what happened. But my, my whole point was that I wasn't hearing you tell your story anywhere besides what you were doing on your own. Mm-hmm. And where in the secular world, you know, we've talked about some of these guys, like Jordan Peterson is an example, even though he got canceled or ostracized by his, you know, one of his communities, he was nevertheless allowed to have, to have a platform elsewhere. And that didn't seem to be happening here. And I wanted to understand why that was. And so you and I started talking about, you know, that state, and which is one of the reasons I was excited to do this with you, is to be able to really hear, go, to, go deep, you know, um, on, on that part of the story. With, if any disclaimer, the one that obviously you know, we've known each other now for a long time, that I'm not a person who believes that you have to agree with everything somebody says in order to remain friends with them. And remember, to, uh, remember 
or it be able to be close to them mm-hmm. because I have disagreements with people all the time, people mm-hmm. in, in my family and otherwise, but it didn't seem like that was the kind of welcome or, or treatment that was given, right? It was like, and again, you'll tell it, but there was no forum for you besides the ones you created yourselves. That's the way that I saw it or read it. Is that, mm-hmm. is that a fair yeah. sort of assessment? I think so. What, what happened? What kicked off? <clears throat> How did this start? You're referring to the, the, the video I did in February on the pieces of evidence that Francis is an antipope, or are you talking about the, the Catholic on Purpose summit that I did in which I had a disclaimer saying no speaker is, should be understood as agreeing with, with Patrick Coffin on his conclusion. About I mean, I don't, even know, I don't even know which moment I'm talking about. I just know yeah. that since you left Catholic Answers and over the last couple of years, there was a moment where, you know, we've talked about the fact that a lot of doors closed or a series of doors closed. Yeah. And that you, you know, you, there was a clear reaction to what you were saying and doing. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't know that I've ever heard from you what actually happened and why a lot of those doors started closing. So I don't know when the moment was or what caused it. Maybe there were yeah. several things. Well, I've never, I've never unspooled it in an improv way. And you, you and I did not pre-rehearse this question. Yeah. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to take a, a pass at the big picture. Mm-hmm. I began to notice as a Catholic in the very first weeks and months of starting in March, 2013, when this total unknown from Buenos Aires stepped out onto the loggia, called himself Pope Francis. We learned that he named himself after Francis of Assisi, a man who himself never took the priesthood. Mm -hmm. But he was clergy. He was a deacon. He was a deacon. Yes. That counts. You're speaking one. True. (laughs) Yes, I agree. Put the (laughs) the knife. People people can't see a knife here. Put the knife down, (laughs) Joe. Whether it's the strange glasses he wore or the odd way he raised his hand and said, Buena Sera, instead of something more papal whether it was the deliberate choice of Gottfried Daniels to stand immediately behind him to the left. Gottfried Daniels is the homosexualist, pro-abortion, I would say uber-leftist Cardinal Archbishop of Antwerp, Belgium, who presided over the slow death of the church in Belgium. He is on audio as having protected one of his fellow bishops against sexual abuse claims by his own biological nephew. So a lot of evils were covered up and a lot of things were ignored that should not have been. This is the man given the spot in the global spotlight that night, March 13th, 2013. I tried to square the circle for the first couple of years that, well, we've had bad popes. Maybe this is just a bad pope. Then I read of a, I read the cover of a book by a guy called uh, Mark Antonio Colonna, which is a pseudonym for Dr. Henry Sear, it's called The Dictator Pope. I thought, oh, that seems kind of harsh, till I read it. Four years of research put into two covers, um, and I, I began to see dots being connected between the way this guy was vetted from obscurity. No one had heard of him before. He wasn't really a can- contender at John Paul II. He was a contender in the conclave when Benedict, Benedict XVI was. Mm-hmm elected. But apart from that, he was kind of like the Barack Obama of, of prelates. And then I read about the St. Gallen Mafia, this group of 
of leftist clique cardinals that conspired. We now, how do we know this? Well, they brag about it in public sources. One of those three sources is the biography of Daniels. Another is a book by Austin Ivory called The Great Reformer, which is a biography of Francis that came out 13 months after he was uh, started in Rome. And the third is Uncle Ted McCarrick, the highest profile uh, pedophile in American history. He gave a talk at Villanova University. And they all brag about this behavior of schmoozing and vote blocking and getting someone to agree to the papal office as long as they could give him the votes, sort of quid pro quo behind the, behind the closed doors. Politicking. Mm-hmm. I did not know that in 1996, John Paul II wrote an apostolic constitution called University Dominici Gregis. An apostolic constitution for non-Catholics or Catholics who've never heard the phrase is the highest level of authority of a document short of a, di- of a dogma. So it's, it's, it lays down um, binding law governing the church. And this University Dominici Gregis lays down the rules for future conclaves. And articles 79 through 81, especially in that document, explicitly forbid the very behavior that these cardinals brag about publicly. And the penalty is also very clear from his document. Automatic latte sententia, in other words, in, it's the act of doing the thing that produces the excommunication. consequence, excommunication, mm-hmm. for the conspirators and for the man who agrees to them. Yeah. Now, I did not want to come to this conclusion because the conclusion that was pressing on my mind was then the conclave is invalid and Jorge Mario Bergoglio is not the real pope. He's an antipope. Because I, I was, because none of us alive have ever had any experience with an antipope, I was not aware at the time that we've had 30 plus antipopes. I didn't know it was that, that, that many. Depending on how you define it, some say as high as 42, but 30 is the, is the minimum. Now, antipope does not even necessarily mean a bad man. It certainly doesn't imply antichrist. An antipope is simply a man falsely believed to be pope. Mm-hmm. And sometimes brilliant churchmen like the great St. Vincent Ferrar, a Dominican, I'm kind of amazed that St. Vincent Ferrar is not better known. This guy literally raised the dead. Fantastic preacher known all over Europe, famous, mm-hmm. um, uh, famous Dominican. And he was uh, alive at the time of the Avignon crisis. And he was encouraging all of his followers and prisoners to follow Pope Clement VIII, who was an antipope. So he was pronouncing the wrong guy's name in the Te Igitur of the Mass, the canon of the Holy Mass. And it took an unlettered woman named Catherine from Siena to publicly correct him, mm. saying the true Pope is in Rome, it's Urban VI. And over time, St. Ferrar repented and acceded that he was pointing folks to the wrong Pope. Okay. The wrong man. So fast forward to my interview with Cardinal Raymond Burke about three years ago. At this point, I hadn't reached any conclusions. I just thought this was disturbing and super interesting that John Paul II, only as early as recent as 1996, had kind of foreseen that some future funny business is going to go on and he wanted it nipped in the bud with the strongest possible penalty, excommunication. So I asked his, uh, his eminence, whether the canonical crimes of the St. Gallen Mafia could invalidate the conclave. And Cardinal Burke is a very brilliant answerer of questions because he anticipates seven of my follow-ups and hits them before I ask them. After a pause, he said, uh, Patrick, it is possible. But 
it becomes very difficult to assess the, the facts in the case because the cardinals who would judge in a forum like that are also, at least in part, the cardinals who committed the crimes. Fox watching the hen house. Mm -hmm. So that was it. I left it alone. Then I discovered a book by a Colombian attorney. And the book is called Pope Emeritus, question mark, the always is also a forever. And that book was like lightning in a bottle. I had never heard the canonical legal case, not only the details of that conclave and the voting structures and the things that they did illegally, but also what I call the kill shot, which is not the conclave, but what happened on February 11th, 2013. And that day was the day that the Holy Father, Pope Benedict, read his Declaratio, which is Latin for declaration. It should have entitled the Renunciatio. I always say, don't believe me, believe the canons that govern the way popes are supposed to resign. Two paragraph document that he told Peter Shewald, he wrote in his uh, spare time uh, mm -hmm. on, a, on a walnut desk with a pen. And remember, Pope Benedict XVI read, dreamed, spoke, preached, lectured at the PhD level in Latin for 40 plus years. He was also the main editor of the 1983 Code of Canon Law under his mentor, Pope John Paul II. He knew all the canons by heart. He knew exactly how to properly resign the papacy. So what the, the author, Estefania Costa Ochoa, wrote is that he did not resign the office. In Latin, the word is munus, M-U-N-U-S. He does not resign the office of the papacy in that document that he read in front of the cameras. Mm -hmm. He resigns the ministerium. That he did resign. So he resigned the external functions of the papacy. He resigned the right to uh, appoint cardinals. He resigned the, the ability to write magisterial documents. He didn't resign the office. Now, a good analogy that, ha that helps me get to this finish line is a driver's license. If you have a driver's license, then you merit the right to drive. Now, you could write a letter to the public, I will never drive again, and maybe you'll never drive again. But unless you hand in your driver's license, you have the ability, because you're the, quote, office holder of a driver in your particular state. I'm convinced that Pope Benedict XVI deliberately did not resign the office. He knew he was the office holder, which means he knew his, his successor and all his so-called papal acts would be null and void. And in the first couple of years, I was frankly angry at Benedict. I thought, why did you quit? Right. It's like the dad who's a weak dad moves to Florida and sends love letters to his family trying to console us because now we have an abusive stepfather. This is before I discovered all this evidence. And I think it fits the facts and I, I no longer have any anxiety about what, you know, Francis said this, Francis does that. I just think, well, what do you expect? Mm -hmm. Do you expect him to act like someone who has the protection of the Holy Spirit? A man who has deliberately renounced the title of Vicar of Christ, who has praised Emma Bongino, the, the foundress of, of the pro-abortion movement in Italy, calls her a national treasure, allies himself with all the powers of the world, has made strong alliances with the enemies of every previous pontiff. Mm. It's a long list. Um, and then just on a, on a symbolic level, why did Benedict XVI still wear the white papal cassock? He wore the white zucchetto. He, yeah. tells, he tells Andrea Tornielli in 2014 that the reason he didn't wear a black cassock and be dressed like a cardinal is that there were no black cassocks to be had at the time. Which isn't that one doesn't seem believable. Yeah, if you, there, there, there's a lot of things that you said though. Let's unpack a couple of these mm -hmm. because, and first of all, just for the 
to state the absolute obvious. You've clearly been studying this in, you know, in a variety of ways, and you have a lot of depth of information that even if I knew a refutation for, I wouldn't know where to start. So you're just going to get my very honest questions about mm-hmm. a lot of things. Number one, Cardinal Burke mm-hmm. does not agree with your conclusion, correct? I don't know. Well, I mean, I thought I've heard him say that he believes that Pope Fra- He's never said Pope Francis is not the valid pope, which is, by the way, I, I don't believe that he isn't the valid pope at mm-hmm. all. I believe he is. But Cardinal Burke, though he, con- according to you, concedes that maybe this scenario that you described with the conclave, et cetera, could happen the way that you described. Nevertheless, he has not reached the same conclusion you have. Certainly hasn't done it publicly. I've never seen anything like that. I, I haven't either. Okay. He's been very circumspect about everything since the dubia was ignored. Okay. The other question that I had is about the, the, um, the, not the consist, the consistory, the, uh, the conclave. Mm-hmm. If it's true that these these forces of kind of lobbying, et cetera, and all of these different things, and I can understand and agree with you and don't refute the evidence of that uh, document that you that you mentioned, which calls for a penalty of excommunication if that ever happens, mm-hmm. are you suggesting then that it happened only during the election of Francis and never before? I think it happened before. So I then think- wouldn't that invalidate those as well? Yes, the kill shot is upstream temporarily and causally from the conclave. The conclave happened in March. Benedict resigned 28 days plus before then. And he, he read his, he read his declaratio on February 11th. Right. If you, and, what, and go ahead. What, what, what I was saying though is these activities of lobbying, of trying mm-hmm. to rally people to one side, yeah. all the things that are forbidden in this document that Pope John Paul may have seen and kind of telegraphed and said, hey, we got to nip this in the bud, all that stuff that you said. Do you believe that any of that activity, which is now, as now, now incurs a lette sententia excommunication, mm-hmm. do you believe any of that activity happened in any previous conclave before Francis is what I'm asking? Y- yes, a good question. The then, an- my answer to you is yes. Okay, and I pr- probably, to the extent that it happens, my guess would be maybe it happened before as well. Then why wouldn't that mean that all the pre a, a number of previous popes who we feel now, from a historical perspective, were popes actually weren't if we follow your logic? Uh, good question. I like to not get ahead of my own skis. I don't know the answer to that question because none of us have a super look because the proceedings are supposed to be super secret. I think what's likely to have happened is mm-hmm. even in John Paul II's own election after John Paul I died, because he was at... He was present at two. No, he was present at, no, he was present at two. He was present at the conclave that gave him his the predecessor, John Paul I. And then he was obviously part of his own voting. He saw how things went down in two papal conclaves. He was not a cardinal yet when Paul VI was elected, I believe in 1963, but he had two and they were 33 days apart. I think what, I think what inspired him in his later years was the memory of attempts that were made to vote block, to schmooze, to treat the papal office like a political office. Whereas, hey, if we get these votes, then you're going to pay us back in the form of this LGBT thing, that uh, anti-homeless initiative, this other Marxist thing, Mm -hmm. uh, quid pro quo. I think he saw the machinations. 
and he knew the direction the church was going. And honestly, Charlie, I don't have, I don't want to think tribally. I don't even consider myself conservative. I just want to be based. I, my binary, I hope, is good versus evil, true versus false. So I, I don't, I'm not afraid to say that I think John Paul II made some major errors. I think he did. He, he made some decisions that I think were pastorally disastrous. And he gave us some of the cardinals that became the St. Gallen Mafia. He gave us Bernadine. He gave us McCarrick. There's a lot of bad apples with red hats on that sure. John Paul II promoted. And I think and we Jesus have to admit that. Jesus gave us Judas, though, by that. Jesus gave us Judas. Yeah. That's an excellent way to frame all church corruption. Mm -hmm. Our Lord's own chose, cho choice of the 12, humanly speaking, was not very impressive. They all leave. One betrays him to his death. One denies him three times. Only one sticks around with his mother at the his death. Yeah. Only not, one. not impressive. Right. But divine grace works of through course. imperfection of and course. corruption. So I think there were, I think John Paul II observed attempts at undermining the integrity of it. And I think he wanted to do something about it the high, at the highest level that he could. And you can't define that as a dogma, but you can write an apostolic constitution. Right. And again, I keep saying, don't believe Patrick Coffin. I'm a guy in California with a laptop, but at least believe Canon 332.2. That lays down the conditions for valid papal resignation. And Pope Benedict could have resigned at any moment after February 2013. Is there is there anyone that you can think of right now that has a, you know, irrespective of where you sit on a kind of ideological or ecclesial divide, mm -hmm. you look at this person and they have, their bona fides are inscrutable, relatively speaking. Cardinal, canon lawyer, somebody like that, that you can say, they see all of this too. They see all of these things, they put it all together and they've come to this conclusion. Mm -hmm. And there's somebody who's a kind of mainstream, credible person right now in the church. Can you think of somebody um, like that? I can think of two prelates, uh, both are retired. One is Archbishop, his last name is Lenga. Uh -huh. He's he Polish. Me a letter too sure. because of... uh, Cardinal Lenga, I believe is a Polish Archbishop, retired. I think he was given the Golden Boot Award by, by Bergoglio. I don't remember when he retired. He has openly stated that uh, he doesn't believe that the, that the current occupant is the real Pope. The first Bishop I ever interviewed on this was, he's still alive. He's 101, 100 years old now. He's Bishop Rene Henry Gracida, who was ordained to the priesthood by John Paul II. He was the first Bishop of Pensacola, Florida when it was made into a diocese. And he was, he's the Corpus Christi, Texas Bishop Emeritus. He's the first one to articulate all of this to me from it was a episode that I did with him a couple of years ago and it was called retired Bishop speaks his mind. I should have said it's retired Bishop thinks that um, Benedict was the real Pope. As you know, there's many different ways to title your show. Um, those are two. These guys know what happens when you, when you open your mouth about this, you automatically become a pariah. Mm -hmm. People, I know a lot of conservative-minded, let's just call them trad cons in Catholic media, especially, they delight in calling Francis a globalist, a Satanist, a Masonic agent, a homosexualist, a modernist, a liberal. Uh, they, they'll say, they'll call him just about anything. But if you use the word antipope, people lose it. Oh, you're state of a countess. You're crazy. You're a rad trad. I'm about as anti-rad trad. I mean, I got pounded by SSPX people when I was hosting Catholic Answers Live because 
Tim Staples and I, for instance, did a couple episodes on rad tradism, by which we did not mean Catholics who love the traditional land mass. I love the traditional land mass. It's, I'm, it's almost my exclusive go-to. I'm talking about a spirit of schism that makes you a high church Protestant, like yeah. the SSPX, mm-hmm. which are in schism. Mm-hmm. They are not part of the Catholic church. The reason they will not ever condemn Bergoglio, go to the SSPX website, look for criticisms of Francis. You're not going to find any. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they are allowed to operate because of his largesse. Mm-hmm. Their ire is especially aimed at John Paul II, who excommunicated their hero, Archbishop Lefebvre, and the four others in May 1988, and Benedict, who in 2009 lifted the excommunications while explaining very clearly that the SSPX do not exercise legitimate ministry in the Catholic Church. That's never been rescinded until the year of mercy. I think it was 2015. Remember the year of mercy where the SSPX were allowed to, they can... A, a, a bunch of right. extra provisions. Give confession and right. all the different so things. So when, uh-huh. when that was announced at the beginning of that year of faith, I thought, okay, what's going to happen at 12.01 a.m. a year from now? What's going to be the status? Well, it's limbo. Mm-hmm. Catholics have parishes. They have chapels. Catholics have dioceses. They have districts. Catholics have the Pope. They have their spirit general in Rome. Mm-hmm. They're always talking about being in dialogue with Rome. Well, wait a second. I thought you guys were Catholic. Lutherans dialogue with Rome. Sure. Catholics don't. They're obedient. Rome has spoken. The matter's settled. So I, I don't I don't succumb to the to the temptation of a safe harbor just mm. because the Latin happens to the, the mass happens to be in Latin. What was the first uh door to come slamming down or effect of your conclusion being voiced out in whatever way you did? Within, the, how yeah. did you notice this? Uh, my video dropped February 14th, I would say. No, excuse me. It was the uh, anniversary of Benedict's Declaratio. It was February 2021. Within 12 hours, uh, full two hours of Catholic Answers Live was devoted to attacking me and that video. The podcast that I started the following Monday, same thing. Uh, other media figures quickly ran to the fore. Steve Ray, Matt Frad, Ralph Martin. That's a, it's the beginning of a long list. These are people I've been known for very friendly. Time. Yeah, of course. But pick, but, pick but the I'm phone sure. up. Uh, have me on to debate me. You know sure. who debated me? Only one guy debated me. Tim Gordon. Tim had me on Rules for Retrogrades. It was an hour. Uh, John Henry Weston had me on to talk about it. And I was so grateful because I, uh, I'm a Catholic with no adjectives. I like logos. I like disputation. I like debate. I like speech. I like the free flow of ideas. And I'm open to being wrong. If someone can say, here's the faulty premise, Patrick, it's a house of cards. Then that makes me more grateful that I'm a Catholic because it's not all on me. I don't have to be the innovator or the super, you know, the, the pioneer guy. Yeah. And here, here's where just my, you know, being out of my depth in terms of some of the specifics, because I haven't looked into this, but I do know about that Catholic Answers two-hour thing. I do know about some of these refutations that have been published, videos that have been made. Have you heard then no compelling argument? In other words, you said if, if, if the premise is faulty, if I'm wrong, I'm open to it. In all of that content, have you heard nothing that explains another option to what you've come to conclude? I've been waiting for it. The answer is no. The closest is is a word study objection saying that 
monus is really the same as ministerium, that mm-hmm. they're synonyms. And then I'm, it's much ado about nothing. But words matter. And we're sure. talking about Joseph Ratzinger. I met him a year before that in April, 2012, introduced him to my father. It was one of the greatest moments of my life to meet the Vicar of Christ. And my, my dad, may he rest in peace, sobbed for an hour and a half in St. Peter's Creek. He could not hold it together meeting Pope Benedict, who, when you see this man in, in person, there's a palpable peace and joy that just exuded from this man. This just not picked up by the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, not a Rottweiler, more a combination of lion and lamb. And he knows the difference between monist and ministerium. He knows what Canon 332.2 means. And I, I find it impossible to believe that now some people who belong, let's just call it the BIP movement, Benedictus Pope. There's a small minority that believe that. I didn't know that acronym. Yeah. Well, it's it'd be, 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 uh, WP, Benedict was Pope. Right. They believe that Joseph Ratzinger was actually a progressive liberal guy. And he had a, a substantial error in his mind on the day that he resigned. And therefore his substantial error invalidates his own resignation. I find that to be re- absurd yeah. way ahead of the facts because of, of Ratzinger's deep knowledge of Latin and his love of canon law. And he's famous for this German precision. Then what do you make, how do you explain Benedict's own answer to some of these concerns and questions? Excellent question. That's one. Because I, if he can't, yeah. in other words, if the person themselves can't prevail upon someone that something about them is true, what I start thinking about is what kind of evidence would possibly be offered to sway anyone who has that perspective. See what I'm saying? Like I'm trying to get at, well, first of all, what did he say about it? How did he answer that? You mean Benedict? Benedict. How did Benedict answer the concern that he was still the actual Pope and Francis was not? How did he answer it? I will summarize a book by Andrea Cionci Mm -hmm. called The Ratzinger Code. It's a runaway bestseller in, in Italian. You can get it in English. Five bucks on Kindle. The Ratzinger Code. It's not a well-named title in English because it's Benedict didn't speak in a code like you need a secret decoder ring, like a Boy Scout. Cianci studied every line that was publicly pronounced by Benedict from February 27th, which I guess was his last official day, until December 2022 when he died. Every line, every speech, every little allocution, every interview, including the published works of Peter Shewald. Ratzinger's longtime collaborator and biographer. Sheesh. Yep. So every public pronouncement by Benedict has been studied by Andrea Cianci, C-I-O-N-C-I. So I'm just standing Andrea's, I don't know him well. He and I have emailed. I've never met him. To, but what, to what end? What was, he, what was he trying to do? He was trying to explain the hints that Benedict was giving for those that have eyes to see that he's aware that he created an impeded sea. There is provision in canon law for an impedency for an archbishop, but it's never been done before for the office of the papacy. An impeded see is the appearance of being the Pope, excuse me, appearance of not being the Pope, when you know you are the office holder of the Pope, which renders null and void all the acts of your successor. But wouldn't that make him a liar then? It would make him a liar if he lied. Cianci's take on this, and I think it makes sense, is that if you heard of and maybe your listeners have heard of uh, um, mental reservation. 
Mm-hmm. The Holy Father answered questions of Pete Shewald and Andrea uh, Tornielli and others. And it's a very short list of people allowed near him to ask any questions that would remind you of the way our Lord answered questions in his parables. He answers parabolically. One thing is certain. Benedict XVI never once said this word, these words. The real Pope is Francis. I'm not the real Pope. Follow him. Never. Hmm. In, I think it's called A Life, another biography, it's two volumes by Shewald. He asks the Holy Father, I hope I have that title right. Um, How do you remember all these book titles? I have no idea. I have no idea. I can't remember anything I've read. I also remember A Very Brady Christmas and I can't get that out of my head. I don't know. Some things that I care about stick. Um, He asks the Holy Father about the claim that he didn't really resign. Well, what do you think about that? He says, and uh, the Holy Father answered him. Yes, some of my friends were angry at the decision that I made back in February, 2013. But I must say and emphasize, and he kind of, you can imagine him slapping his hand on the chair uh, armrest. There is but one Pope. He doesn't finish the sentence. Right. Well, there is one Pope and he knows there's one Pope. Even his choice of the title Pope Emeritus is very telling because people think of the word emeritus, meaning retired guy who used to be a professor, right? Professor Emeritus. In Latin, emeritus means he who merits the office. Okay. If Richard Nixon in August 1974 had resigned and then got on Marine One or Marine Two, and flew in a helicopter, and didn't fly to San Clemente to retire. Right. He flew, landed in the in the East East Wing Garden, and then calls himself President Emeritus, and once in a while dresses like the president. Will pronounce upon American public affairs, but is kind of not really the president. People would say that's weird. Well, on the internet, you can read uh, President Nixon's resignation. It's a one sentence resignation. You can see the PDF online. Right. I think it's uh, Alexander Haig at the time was the Secretary of State. I hereby renounce the office of the Presidency of the United States. Sincerely, Richard M. Nixon. Boom. That is a valid resignation. Right. So I, I just looked up and, you know, we don't have to stay too long on this, mm-hmm. but I, I looked up some of his words. This isn't all of it, but he, he says about this, it was a difficult decision, but it was a fully conscious choice. And I mm-hmm. think I did well to resign. Some of my more fanatical friends are still upset. They have not accepted my choice. They don't want to believe that it was a conscious choice. Mm-hmm. My conscience is clear. There is only one Pope. Mm-hmm. So what you're suggesting is while he's saying that, he's saying that the one Pope is him. Yes. See, that to me would be so destructive to his legacy and would make him so dishonest that it would— it would really, I mean, from my standpoint, it's, it's, it's deceptive. It would make him a deceptive person. And I just don't believe that he actually was a deceptive person. Further, the part that I struggle with is like the level of detail and sequence of things that need to fall together and the faith to believe in those things and that everybody else is withholding, working together, even the people involved who say that they're not— it just, start, it just starts feeling so unrealistic that that could actually be the case. In other words, the, the fact, you know, all of these things taken together start painting this picture of like, you know, this kind of nefarious thing. 
But everybody has to be in on it. Everybody has to be part of this sort of cover-up. Even the people involved in it who are like actors, principal actors in it, are saying there's nothing to see here. And the best that we can do is say, well, they're really just not being straight. Or they're being parabolic in their meaning, but they have a secret meaning, but they know and I know because I've kind of researched it all. It just doesn't, it, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a really difficult thing for me to objectively look at and go, this, this, this is real because of the stretches that you'd have to get to, to have all of this concerted, all these concerted efforts work together to kind of create this thing. That's the part. I just don't believe people work that seamlessly and well to like make these things happen. And I, and I don't have the refutation for each thing that you have. And that's not, mm -hmm. what, that's not what I'm trying to do anyway. I just wanted to hear your opinion because I had yeah. never heard it. Sure. Um, and maybe I will go research and maybe we can come back and do this again. But, um, but the part that's, that I find unbelievable is the amount of coordination that would be required for all of these things to be the case. It just doesn't, to me, it doesn't seem logical that that would actually happen. I think only a small handful would have to, would have to know. Pete Shawal being one, possibly Gary Ganshwan being another, who's now also fired. Right. Uh, it wouldn't take a big committee to do this. It would take the Holy Father deciding to leave public life because he had no support whatsoever in the Korea. If you watch the footage of him landing in Munich, Munich, Germany, on his first apostolic visit as Pope, he's the opposite of John Paul II, who was hailed as the conquering hero. Remember the first time in 1979 in Warsaw, we want God, we want God, nine days, Newt and Callista Gingrich did a documentary called Nine Days That Changed the World. Uh, the Holy Father went back to Germany three or four times as Pope, just given the golden pariah treatment. They won't even shake his hand at the airport. It's weird footage to watch. In his first homily in April, 2005, he asks the universal church to pray for him that he might not flee out of fear of the wolves. That's a striking thing for a sovereign pontiff to say, who are the wolves? The St. Gallen mafia. Mm -hmm. They're criminally forced him out. We don't know what pressures were brought to bear. We don't know what agonizing state he was in. I think you can domesticate his answer there that you just read by applying the principles of, of mental reservation, like the Nazis at the door. Do you have Jews here? No, but in your mind, you know the Jews are in your basement. Mm -hmm. That's not lying to the Nazis who have no right to it. So you can, you can give an answer... Yeah, but you can here, give an but, answer but, that right, you, but the you Nazis hold in are your trying mind to kill truth. people. Somebody here is asking for clarity, and it would be, I think, it's an act of violence to not give that clarity when you can. Nobody's life is life is at stake. Here. I think I think Bergoglio mm -hmm. and the Saint Gallen Mafia are out to kill the Catholic Church. Mm. I think they're out to explicitly destroy the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith. Yeah, and because I don't, I don't think this is a really important point to emphasize. It doesn't matter if Bergoglio is the highest, most saintly, Latter-day Saint Pius X in history, because you can't be Pope if someone else is Pope. That's my, that's my stance. I'm not, I don't have animus against made, him. But now you've made a new claim though. This is a new claim that he's out that to destroy. And, I, I do, uh, by, okay. by his, yeah, I think the actions yeah. that, I mean, the Abu Dhabi documents, God wills the diversity of religions. Uh, no, he doesn't. Divorced and civilly remarried Catholics can have Holy Communion. No, they can't. Uh, giving handwritten high fives to James Martin. How can you square the circle? Renouncing the title Vicar of Christ? 
But but that's not a formal renunciation. He, he hasn't published a renunciation of the vicar of Christ. He doesn't no, choose it. It it's he not just the bishop he, of Rome, right? He had the title removed from the annuario, the the secretary of state. Uh, okay, official thing. He's made a big he, deal of it. Yeah. Um, have you seen the footage of him in Loretto? Um, this may seem petty. I mean, it is petty from one point of view. In Loretto, Italy, a couple of years ago, there's a long lineup of lay people that want to kiss his his ring. And he does this strange, remember the game of Psych? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Psych, 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 Psych. And he's grinning like this weird clownish yeah. grin, but almost taking delight. He also smacked a woman for grabbing his hand too hard or he thought it was too hard or whatever it was. Uh, the he Chinese said, woman in St. Yeah. Yeah. He's definitely. Yeah, but he apologized for that. Maybe we, no one's perfect. Well, yeah. To, to me, maybe that maybe is Seven a, million people grabbing you in one day and it's like, I've, I've had enough or whatever. Who knows? He's human but, after but, all. But yeah. the, the hand thing is strange. Yeah. Um. LifeSite News has chronicled a lot of this and has mm -hmm. from the beginning mm -hmm. uh, reported on things that most Catholic commentators, they don't want to go after because yeah. we love to read about bad popes. In fact, Catholic Orthodox Catholics love talking about bad popes because it proves the divine foundation, foundation of the church. I, it's good. It's a good argument. It goes back to what you said earlier. Our Lord's own choice of the 12 is not very impressive. Um, but we're not used to it in front of us. Right. We're unfolding okay in real, in real time. Historical terms, but not in current terms. I, I definitely mm -hmm. agree with that. And we have had evidence of this historically. And there have been a lot of things, you know, and, and kind of despicable office holders. And they've done all kinds of things that are abominable. And usually it's used, as you said, as evidence that like, look mm -hmm. at this very, you know, th this evil action is kind of evidence that of the incorruptibility of the church, because despite all these crooked churchmen, Nevertheless, the church never formally taught evil yeah. and all that stuff. I mean, I've used some mm -hmm. of that argumentation myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, I'd have to study it and go deeper into each of these things, but it just seems to me that you have to have a tremendous amount of faith in all of these little things, the guy standing behind you taking the picture, the Latin word for X, the, you know, what somebody's wearing, the kind of glasses. I mean, these things to me seem very small. And you'd have to have a lot of faith in their importance, like an outsized level of, of faith in their importance for you to come to a conclusion as significant as that, especially the second conclusion, which is they're out to destroy the church. I completely don't believe that even for a second, but, I, I, but I'm not as studied on this as you are. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I want to, 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 to do that. I want to learn more about it. I just don't have the I just don't have right. the, the, the material to draw from and, and look at this. Yeah. But as a person hearing it for the first time in the way that you've unspooled it, it seems like a lot of very small kind of idiosyncratic things woven together to create this giant apparatus rather than a principled thing, um, you know, that you can look at and say in kind of more binary terms, this is the reason why yeah. this is, right? And all of these people basically, uh, or n not a lot of people, let's just say it generously, not a lot of people who are mainstream folks who are sort of, you know, just church people, whatever, coming to the same conclusion. Mm -hmm. I've certainly never, I don't hear this talk from an inside the, the, the church perspective, even though there are people that I talk to who are very traditional, very conservative, and others who are very progressive. I don't ever hear this. It's not like a conversation that comes up. And so it's hard for me to buy it. You know what I mean? Totally. I, I'm just being straight with you. Totally. It's very hard for me to buy it. I can't believe I'm on this side of the of this equation. Yeah, I, I didn't want to come to this conclusion. I, I thought, 
I woke up in a sweat once in the middle of this thinking, millions of souls will be lost. I can't open my mouth about so this. So you what? think you discovered something in a way. You think I just I am not the pioneer of this. I discover what people in multiple countries have. Right. Let me give you one example of a very mainstream guy who's highly renowned. He's won awards for his latest book. His name is Matthew Hanley. H-A-N-L-E-Y. L-E-Y. Matt Hanley was on Catholic Answers Live 10 years ago talking about AIDS, condoms, and, and uh, Africa. Remember the Holy Father said something about the, the Zika virus or AIDS and the, it was Benedict against, did, excuse me, Benedict, yeah, yeah Benedict. Yeah. And it was another, there's another reason why Pope should not give interviews. For that sure, was, I that remember was, that. That caused yeah. uh, quite a scandal. Big time. Yeah. So he wrote a book on it. Very, very clear-minded guy. Uh, Matthew is a, is a former fellow at the National Catholic Bioethics Center, which is the gold standard mm -hmm. for accurate articulation of Catholic moral teaching on bioethics. He, I found something last year that he wrote in Front Page magazine, edited by a guy I've interviewed, David Horowitz. And it was called Francis, Our First Antipope in Centuries. I went, what? His latest book is on the church's criteria for death, the, the criteria for brain death and that whole debate. Mm -hmm. And it's won literary awards because he's a very, very sharp thinker. People, if, the, if, you, if you want to look up my name and Matthew, you can see my interview with him. And he says, this evidence shouldn't be controversial because it's so clear cut. It's so obvious that Benedict does not resign validly. Whether, now, Matthew doesn't go after what I do. Did he know he was not resigning validly? I think the evidence is over, overwhelming that he did know he did not resign validly. But let me ask you this as a, just a yeah. personal pastoral. You're a deacon. Yeah. You baptize babies and others. I do. There are two cases in the Others last- Others with permission, babies without. Yeah, because- Got you, yeah. proxy. Mm -hmm. um, so you know words matter. Yes, they do. There are two cases, one- In sacramental. Of course. Yeah. Sure. So there's, there's a case- They matter of, at all times, but they matter right? especially from a sacramental theological mm -hmm. standpoint, yeah. This is binary, salvation, not salvation. Valid baptism, not valid baptism, right? Correct. In Phoenix and in uh, Detroit, two similar cases happened within a- with, About two years ago- Close in. I remember close in. Okay. The guy who wasn't baptizing correctly for 20 years and had to go and rebaptize everybody. Right. Yeah. Uh, priest, uh, priest, I want to say Matthew, Father Matthew Hood. I don't know why that name sticks there. It's people, probably people, right because you remember people, everything. People can look it up. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was reviewing his own baptism and the deacon says, we baptize you. And he went, let's rewind that again. We? we? Yikes. Isn't it I? That went to the CDF. Mm -hmm. That was pronounced officially. Those, that baptism was not valid, which means all his subsequent uh, sacraments, sacraments were not valid, correct. which means anyone who went to confession with him and every Eucharist he distributed was not the real presence. Nothing mm -hmm. was confected mm -hmm. because he was never baptized. Now, this is a difference of one letter, I versus W-E. Correct. So if letters matter, remember there was a controversy well, about not, homoousius. But, but I'm, not, but, I'm not saying you're disagreeing with this. I'm yeah. just highlighting there's a prescription mm -hmm. for valid res resignation of the papacy. It is laid out in canon law and Benedict of all people knew how to do it, but he didn't do it. Now, whether he knew he was doing it or not doing it, I think, I think Matthew Hanley goes to the Occam's razor of making it really, really clear cut. Because all the other stuff I mentioned, now you and I are having a freewheeling, a freewheeling conversation. Some of the things like the glasses, the weirdness, uh, Danielle's, who cares? That's window dressing, it's not that important. Even the dress, eh, that's not substantial. But those are confirmatory signs mm -hmm. of what happened in, when he read that declaratio, which itself was misnamed.
So, uh, right. But then are you claiming a conspiracy? Let's assume that it was incorrect. Mm-hmm. You're saying it is incorrect. Let's assume it is incorrect. I'll concede mm-hmm. that. You're saying that there is a conspiracy to behind the reason why it's incorrect that they Pope Benedict knew he wasn't resigning incorrectly drew up this resignation as a result of that and decided to keep it hush nobody would know what would be the benefit of that what's the benefit of that why the, would he do this that every act of his successor would be null and void but and not why binding. would he want that for a church that he loves well, he doesn't want the church destroyed. He didn't want a Morris Letitia. He doesn't want who am I to judge. He doesn't want the, the Abu Dhabi document. Every public pronouncement of Francis represents the anti-Benedict. It's almost, it's almost like a photo negative, how different their approach is. How, I mean, Francis is like the, 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 the perfection of modernism, this def, uh, defined by uh, St. Pius X as the synthesis of all heresies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just saying, preached on that recently. Saying, yeah. I don't agree with what you said, but I preached on the synthesis of all heresies. Right. Yeah. So, um, for, I mean, we, it's a long list. He called the death penalty inadmissible in all cases. No, no, it's not. That's not true. The Vatican itself had the death penalty in 1969. It's not an intrinsic evil. Um, and now he's got... Arch- well, well, but just let's just isolate that one for a second. Why wouldn't the inadmissibility mean today? Not ever. In other oh, well, words, in 2023, yeah, in the United States as an example, I would argue that it is inadmissible in all scenarios in okay. 2023. Well, and the reason for that is because we've come to a moment where the options that we have available, mm-hmm. either disciplinary or rehabilita- rehabilitatively, are so advanced relative to other times in history where the decision to just kill someone because they've done some, they committed some crime, as egregious as that may be, is no longer an admissible choice in 2023. Not that it wasn't in 1623 or 1100 or 300 when those constructs didn't exist. And in order to actually make sure that somebody didn't go around killing people constantly, the best, the only thing we had at our disposal was to put them down. It could have been admissible then. But why, why is it that, that the answer couldn't be simple? Like it's no longer, it's not admissible because we're in today. Well, because I've never heard him say that it's intrinsic, that it's not intrinsic. I'm sorry, that it is intrinsically evil. I haven't heard him say it's intrinsically evil. I've heard him say it's inadmissible, but I always assumed he was making a case for the fact that we've advanced to the point where a death penalty or capital option is mm-hmm. no longer legitimate because of where we are as a civilization. Well, this is, we're getting a little into a slightly different topic. I, as a Catholic, I can affirm that some crimes deserve the penalty of death, not because it prevents them from killing other people, which it does, but because it's just punishment. But to the phrasing of what Cardinal Laderia wrote under Francis's impulsion is it's unclear whether he means just 2023 or the year it came out last year. Mm -hmm. Or, yeah. And it's a, it's weaponized ambiguity again. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, you kind of prove too much by appealing to it because it's not clear from from it, its own text what what is meant by it. Mm. Inadmissible in all cases. Last week, nineteen seventy two. Next next Friday, right? 
That's true. So, there's, just another there, example of weaponized ambiguity. There, there could. I, I don't see the weaponization because I don't assume the intent is negative, but I understand the ambiguity. Right. Perhaps it could have been more clear. It could have been as of you know within our, our modern uh, penal system that we mm-hmm. have in developed nations in the United States with all of our you know uh, uh, wealth and affluence and every kind of program and conceivable configuration of prisons. The idea that, no, we would just destroy a life on purpose because they've committed a crime is no longer an admissible Catholic choice. I understand that. Maybe leaving that part out, that qualifier, Mm -hmm. is the ambiguous part that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, Can divorced and civilly remarried Catholics receive Holy Communion without absolution or without annulment? Yeah. Well, I mean, from my standpoint, no. Um, and I know you're referencing footnote number eight or whatever it is from a more section eight with all the, all the footnotes. Yeah. Yeah. And the dubia that the Cardinals put that he never responded to and all that. And look, I might, I might've done things differently if I was the, the if Holy you were, Father. If you were friend, that's never no, going to happen. No. That's never going to happen. Um, you know, about that. But I think that, uh, you know, you know, I, again, there's, there's, you're, you're, that's a footnote in, an, in a document. And I know that it just takes a drop of poison to kill somebody within a big body of, uh, you know, in a glass of water or whatever. I understand all those analogies. And that you may say, just because there's a lot of other good things in a document, this one bad thing kind of renders it sort of useless. I, I don't see it that way entirely. I realize that that was a big bone of contention. Certainly not just me, a lot of people, a lot of very notable people. And mainstream people and people with like a lot of knowledge more than, more so than I have, there's definitely something there that needs clarification. And if a future Pope answers that dubia mm-hmm. and says, Hey, this is a footnote, you know, and sort of strikes it out. How would you feel about that? Is the rest of the document is okay beyond that? Well, you're footnote? asking a question of someone who thinks he's an anti-pope. So the whole thing has right. no validity for me. Right. I can, I can see if he was just a bad pope that, uh, that document, that encyclical could be subject to future edition. That's possible. Same thing happened to the catechism on, uh, the matter of the phrasing of, well, I can think of two, the phrasing on the teaching of lying was amended under John Paul II. And also, uh, uh, Evangelium Vitae, number, the first edition of Evangelium Vitae, number 99. I don't know why I remember 99, but the Holy Father, because he was a very merciful man and a loving father and a, uh, an icon of the suffering Christ, put in the first, the first published version of Evangelium Vitae that women who've had abortions should ask forgiveness of their children who now live in the Lord, which is very lovely but it had to be amended because mm-hmm. he gets ahead of the tradition. You can't affirm the automatic salvation because it's never been defined. Right. So subsequent editions don't, don't include that. Don't include that. So, um, yeah, published, published papal documents can be subject to future revision. Mm-hmm. It's very, very rare. It's possible. So nevertheless, all of this, these uh, opinions that you shared mm-hmm. out in the open in these various ways, got a very swift and immediate response from a lot of folks. What has that done for you as you think about your current media work, apostolate, et cetera? 
what have you what has that caused you to do? Have you taken stock of things? Have you decided to move things in a different direction? What are you excited about now relative to the media work that mm -hmm. you're doing? Like, where does this go? Excellent question. My first reaction, because I predicted it in my video, people are going to be angry about this. I didn't expect it to be so vitriolic and indulged in by people who I could tell had not confronted the evidence that I did, hadn't, hadn't walked my journey, didn't know the circuitous routes and the dead ends and all the, the sleepless nights that I had over this and getting there. They just treated it kind of glibly and rejected it. Um, but I've had a lot of people come to me back channel saying, I never thought about this. I was always afraid of the anti-Pope thesis because I identified it with like crazy ratchetism, but you've really given me a, a lot to think about. There are priests who, whom I will not name that are now, as we and I record this, are in the middle of their own conscience crisis because they find they can't pronounce Francis's name in the Te Igitur mm. because they've come to the same conclusion privately and they're wrestling with going public with it because they know what's mm. gonna happen. They're gonna get, they're gonna get instantly suspended. Eve, the taboo against criticizing Francis is so powerful. Deacons are afraid of pastors. Pastors are afraid of the deanery head. The deanery head is afraid of the arch auxiliary. The auxiliary is afraid of the ordinary. The ordinary is afraid of the nuncio and the nuncio is afraid of the guy. It's just one big culture of fear. Yeah. So people, and that's wrong. And that's just, uh, that's bad human formation is what mm -hmm. that is. Yeah. And it would combine with some papal allotry as though everything every Pope says is like holy writ. And, um, but I'm, I'm encouraged because I, I don't, I'm not emotionally wired. Uh, uh, what's the word? I don't have the, the axle tie up thing. Yeah. You're not wrapped around. One, an axle. Once, yeah. once I came to that conclusion, what was a jagged morass of chaos suddenly became this kaleidoscope of order. I think, yeah, that makes sense. When I learned we have had 30 plus antipopes and Sometimes these things take years to, to for the Holy Spirit to Usually work to work does. out to work mm -hmm. out. We now we're, we live in an internet culture. We want things last Tuesday. Maybe that started with the invention of the microwave. <laughs> I have a theory about Francis, though, that I think I've maybe I've shared this with you before. That I think even for the people who don't come to the conclusion that you've come to and struggle with some aspects of his papacy, not to the degree that you do, uh, or in your case, you don't, you don't struggle with the papacy. I don't, you don't struggle with really, it. It's not, you have no struggle anymore. See, I can see where your liberation has come struggle from. Struggle free! It's awesome. Um, but my theory is really simple. There's three things. Mm -hmm. I think that Francis, three characteristics that are unique to him that confound a lot of people, especially in the context of the popes that we've had immediately preceding him. One is that he's South American, okay? I spent my career explaining to people things like cultural relevance and cultural understanding of Latino culture, okay? You are very well situated with regard to an understanding of Latino culture in a variety of different ways, which mm -hmm. we don't need to get into. So you understand some of this. But nevertheless, you are not. I was born in Chile. That's what he went. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Uh, by the way, the only version in Spanish of The Office, speaking of Ricky Gervais hours ago, is Chilean. It's called La Office. Just so you know, you can check it out. It's not as good as the English ones. <laughs> I know you're not But it's the only kidding. one in Spanish. Right. Yeah, it's the only one in Spanish. It's Chilean. He's South American. 
Okay, so, and I've made my career about explaining some of the subtle nuance and the differences in cultures, and he's the only South American Pope we've ever had, and I think um, the off-the-cuff, the speaking with your hands, the impromptu, the make the statements like you have to go out there and make a mess, mm-hmm. all of that stuff is something that I get almost instantly culturally in a way that people that other people may not. That's one characteristic. The other characteristic is the juxtaposition of Francis's theology relative to his predecessors. Not that he doesn't have, he's not studied in theology, he is, but his area of background and practice is pastoral theology. That's what he taught in Buenos Aires. That's what he studied. And pastoral theology, as opposed to systematic theology, is, I think, a left-handed, right-handed kind of thing for some people to wrap their mind around in general. And I think that's a difference between Francis and his predecessors. And then the third one is, he is the only, he's the first pope in human history to have had his papacy, or in your case, the non-papacy, but the papacy, I believe, um, in the fullness of the social media age, where every single move, the things, many of which, the ones you mentioned, you became aware of by, the, by virtue of social media. I have no idea what Pope, you know, Pius IV or Alexander or Pope Urban did or how he dealt with people and onlookers and did he pull his hand from somebody and what kind of glasses he was wearing and who he had behind him in a picture. I don't know any of that. He may have had a serial killer behind him, but we don't know any of that because Mm -hmm. we weren't able to observe his every waking minute in the way that we can with Francis. And there may be more things, but those are three that I think about. The cultural difference, which runs afoul of the kind of you know, expectation that a lot of people have, the the um, pastoral bias in his theology and the social media just 24-7 nature of his papacy. You put all those things together along with some missteps in press conferences, ambiguous statements, things like that. And it begins to spin into this vortex that's much bigger than what it is. Or at the very least, I would say, it's no different than perhaps a number of other men who have held that office that we just don't know because we can't see in the same way. Those are some thoughts that yeah. I have about this that I don't hear talked about often. Um, I don't disagree with anything. Uh, my follow-up question back about, let's start with the last one, is wouldn't the fact that it's a immediate global communication ecology incline one if one is the true Pope, to be extra diligent about accuracy? To, to not do, put kiboshes on any improvised 35,000 feet interview? Or take the sit-down interviews with uh, Eugenio Scalfari, the 94-year-old atheist editor of La Repubblica. Yeah. Said, he said that hell doesn't exist. People are just, they, they're like Jehovah's Witnesses. They, there's the, the destruction of the soul, there's no hell. There's never been any apology from the Vatican press office or from the Holy Father. No clarification of any of those interviews ever has ever been been made. But there has been question about, uh, what's his name? Scalfari? Scalfari. Mm-hmm. There's been, there has been question, at least I've heard or read, about 
the faithfulness of his rendition of what happened because he doesn't of, write anything down. Of course, he's also 94. And he I, doesn't I get write it. anything down. He like remembers it and goes home and writes it in an article. Excellent reason to never mm-hmm. sit down with someone like that because you're going to be subject. You would never do it. Yes. Deacon Charlie, interview by, I can see it now. I, agree, <laughs> I didn't say that. I agree that it should, but not doing it, to my mind, doesn't make you not the Pope. In other words, no, not, that's, yeah, I and agree, I Charlie. And I know that that's not your argument. I'm just I saying I don't even that, go there. It's yeah. just one more confirmatory mm-hmm. sign. Why would you go back once, let alone twice, three times, four times, and never clarify? One attempt at clarification he made to Bishop um, Athanasius Schneider, and that was about the Abu Dhabi document. Uh, and Bishop Schneider, like many Catholics, went, uh, this is not true. You can't square the circle. And there was a meeting. There's a Vatican cameras were there. And the, uh, Francis explained that he really meant God's permissive will. This is as reported by His Excellency, Bishop Schneider, for whom I have a lot of respect. Mm-hmm. But the text was never amended. It was published as such, and it's read all over the world. So... I heard that at his ordination, the uh, ordaining bishop didn't actually impose hands, make physical contact with his head. And I think, therefore, he may not actually be a bishop. Do you mean or, Schneider? Schneider. Or? Oh, I can't. This is getting awkward. I can't tell if you're kidding. I, I, I am kidding. Okay. I am kidding. I am kidding. <laughs> well, the word thump was used so instead think, of the word the. <laughs> right. Actually, that that is a true story because I heard um, one of the— uh, one of the auxiliaries, uh, I want to say in Orange County, mm-hmm. um, was doing an ordination, like his first ordination, and didn't impose hands. No contact? No contact. So they had to- No ordination. They, they had to basically do it again, like two days later or something. I mean, so these things do happen um, mm-hmm. from time to time. Okay. What's next mm. for- so? People who've been following your career, Catholic Answers, Coffin Nation, you had this sort of, this big morass that we've been talking about, a lot of different things. A lot of people who are very much in your camp and want to see you continue to do this kind of thing. Other people who responded in the way that you've described, you process all this, you take all these inputs and you decide what, if anything. Like, what what are you thinking about where you take your, your media work and your media apostolate now? Thank you for the opportunity to answer that because I have, I have come to, with every chapter that you live, you find a new way to say the thing that you've always been saying. You find a, uh, a, a new garb for the old thing. And I am really, really on fire about learning and teaching best practices from, for healthy mindset. Our first uh, Hope is Fuel Summit uh, was a one-day course. It wasn't even called anything. It was simply... Of um, seven clinicians, psychiatrists, and therapists in helping people deal with anxiety and depression. And it just lit up. We had people from multiple countries sign in. There were thousands of people who watched it. And that resonated with people because everyone listening right now is fighting some kind of battle. And the battle is, in the end, over a mindset, your yeah. attitude toward, toward things. You and I were talking earlier over a Vietnamese dinner that um, the, the phrase <laughs> service. Almost What's that? Service. Could have killed her. No, wait. Doesn't fit. Um, nothing changed but my attitude. Therefore, everything changed. Mm. And I find that mindset is the governing rudder that controls your whole life. It's the difference between quitting and staying in the fight. It's the difference between staying optimistic in the, in the face of getting um, uh, 
made into a pariah or rejected or in the out crowd. And mindset, I think, in my case, is tied to what I've learned from Rene Girard and Luke Burgess mm-hmm. of Mimesis, Mimetic Desire, and the scapegoating mechanism and the fact that we're made to love. Are you love. a fan of Girard? Huge. Yeah. Yeah. He's had an evolution. Uh, I read, the first book I read is called I Saw Satan Fall Like Lightning. Mm. I've since devoured everything I've, I can get uh, that I can find on him. Uh, Rene Girard, French literature professor, ended up teaching at Stanford for, for 40 years and came up with a theory of human nature called that he called mimesis, as you know, Charlie. But for folks who don't know, mimesis explains a lot of human behavior. It explains long lineups for movie premieres, uh, uh, fistfights at Walmart over it's flat screens. Black stuff. Friday, yeah. Black Friday fights. Uh, remember the, the the ice bucket challenge? Any it's viral the challenge. It's thing in the world. Mm-hmm. People love bandwagons. They love to get on that train. And they love to scapegoat people. They love office gossip. And the ultimate example of office gossip is the scapegoating of the son of God, mm. whose victimhood, I mean, he's, he's a victim for our sins, but he was also the victim of gossip. And his election was rigged in the courtyard. Right. Bravos and Jesus. D- does anyone think that Bravos got more votes? <laughs> no. The deck was stacked by the crucify him crowd. Mm. And people didn't want to... Uh, sign on to the, he's the Messiah, let Jesus go. So they went with the popular mob group think. And Gerard has a beautiful, if you're, if your listeners want to look up um, Rene Gerard's interview where he's talking about Peter's denial. It's a really interesting insight that he has about Peter's denial, warming himself by the fire mm. and what happens there when it's and the, uh, I think it's Luke specifically says a young girl comes up to him. Sometimes mm. it's, it's uh, translated maid or maiden. Mm-hmm. Why is that detail there? Well, Gerard says it wasn't an old crone. It wasn't some old hag. It was a young woman, probably influential, maybe good looking. She's the, it, she's the it girl and she's fingered Peter because of his hick accent. Oh yeah, you were with him. Uh, no, no, I wasn't. Yeah, I recognize. Now there's a crowd forming. Now yeah. we've got a mob think. Peter knows it. And Peter succumbed. He succumbed. He was guilty of being human. And... Our Lord walks out and looks at him and that, then he hears the cock crow. Mm. And that's when Peter flooded his own face with tears. And he realized I just hours ago, I said, I'll die for him. And now I'm denying him to this girl around a fire. And he told me I was going to do it. And he told me I was going to do it. So that's mimesis everywhere. So I used to have my Twitter sub handle was eschew mimesis (laughs) because we, to be, a conscious disciple of Jesus Christ, you can't have tribal thinking. You can't succumb to what the mob is going to say or not say. Whether the mob is your family that you love that are opposing your faith commitment or whether the mob is a media culture that are, that are saying bad things about you. We all die alone. And in the end, we live alone. We live in our prayers. We live with one savior and us. Even those who are, have great marriages, mm. your relationship with Christ is singular and it's unique. And it's got to be a deep friendship that is fed and watered by spending time with him. Mm. And if you're not praying regularly, and I, by regularly, I mean five minutes. You mean in the morning, Jesus help me. That's a good prayer. Three Just great crossing words. crossing yourself when you wake up in the morning is a great, great yep. start mm-hmm. to everything. Yep. If you have blessed salt, mm-hmm. just douse your, just side of the cross on your pillow. Little, little things to keep you, little guardrails to, to remind you that you're, that you, to whom you belong. Have you read The Way of a Pilgrim? 
Is that by Catherine Doherty? No, it's anonymous. It sounds like he's, my, he's my favorite author. <laughs> yeah, Anon I Mouse. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it's nineteen uh, thirties. I want to say mm. Russian. I was going to say I had. That's why I said Catherine Doherty. Yeah, is mm. she Russian? I don't know. Yeah, Russian. Okay, servant of God. Oh, she wrote Pustinia. Her husband Eddie wrote a book, a movie in nineteen forty three called The Fighting Sullivan. Brothers? No, it's called The Fighting Sullivans, which was remade by a writer named Robert Rodat into the film directed by Steven Spielberg, Saving Private Ryan. Really? That was Catherine Doherty's husband, Eddie, wrote the original story. Interesting. The um, Way of a Pilgrim is an Orthodox classic. Mm-hmm. Okay, Orthodox Church, not mm-hmm. right teaching within a Catholic context. Capital O. Capital O, yeah. Um, and... It's it's a book every it's a book everyone should read, but it's it's an anonymous book and it basically documents the wanderings of this Russian peasant, essentially. He happens to be thirty-three years old. And um not sure if it's entirely fictional, autobiographical, mm-hmm. no idea, right? It's anonymous. But it's a spiritual classic in, you know, in the vein of 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 others like, you know, Cloud of Unknowing and things like that. Yep. And uh, basically this peasant goes to a liturgy, a divine liturgy, and he's struck by the words, I believe is in the gospel of Matthew about pray at all times, pray mm-hmm. unceasingly. unceasingly mm-hmm. And it strikes him the sort of impossibility of that in his own mind. How does that work? What does that look like to pray unceasingly? And so it becomes like what um, in Japanese sort of Zen thinking is a cone, which is this mm-hmm. sort of question, this timeless question that has that you struggle with for your your whole life, right? And he goes to hear preachers preach and wise men talk, and he asks them all, he's like, "How do you pray unceasingly?" Completely unsatisfied with the answers, and he spends his whole life basically wandering from village to village, getting pieces of bread and some salt from people who want to give. He's a beggar, essentially mendicant mm-hmm. kind of style, going all over the place. Till he meets this monk, this is like, you know, halfway through the book, meets this monk and this monk gives him the Jesus prayer. Mm -hmm. And he, he says, recite this prayer, go home and go where you're staying and recite this prayer 3000 times. And so he goes back and he, he recites the prayer. Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, God, have have mercy mercy on me, a a sinner. Right. And he then comes back the next day and says, you know, Father, I've, I've done this 3,000 times. It's like, okay, go back there and do it 6,000. And he goes back and he does it 6,000 times, returns the next day. Father, I've done this 6,000 times. Um, he says, okay, very good, my son. Return to me tomorrow, tomorrow and in between today and tomorrow, pray it 12,000 times. And he goes back and he's doing, you know, they have the, the beads, the, the Psalter beads, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's praying the Jesus prayer so much on the Psalter beads that his fingers are bleeding. His tongue is becoming like numb from the repetition, even though he's not actually enunciating the words, but he's moving his mouth and whatever. And he's wiped out from this prayer. But at some point there's this moment of inflection at about the 12,000 per day cycle where his heart begins to beat the prayer. Like literally he integrates the prayer into his person and he starts getting this idea of what it means to pray unceasingly, mm-hmm. that it's sort of this, this prayer of the, the heart, this mystic connection. Sort of marinated with, inside exactly. non, non-verbal level. Non-verbal level, non-cerebral, non-mental. Mm. It's like it is him. He's entered into the sort of isness of prayer 
and he therefore connects with the notion of praying unceasingly. It has a lot of other things, but it it it, it touches on that, the idea mm-hmm. of, you were saying, if you're not praying, right? And even if it's five minutes, even if it's two minutes. But I also think that the Jesus prayer in particular is a really beautiful way to enter into a spirit of prayer uh, through it. So I don't know, just yeah. threw that in there as a side note to what you yeah. were saying. No, that that that's lovely. There's so much compressed in that Jesus prayer. And I, I'm thinking Catherine Doherty, whose born, her born name was Catherine de Hewitt Doherty. There's a chapter in the Seven Story Mountain by Thomas Merton called mm-hmm. The Baroness. Mm-hmm. He walks by, he walks by what was called Friendship House in Harlem. And he hears this voice. He'd never heard a voice like this before. Arresting woman's voice. Had the ring of truth. He walks in and he sits in the back. It was Catherine Doherty. Who ended up in Toronto. She founded Madonna House. It used to be called Friendship House. And she died in 1985 after founding Madonna House, which is now a worldwide apostolate in 22 different countries. And she is a true prophet. She, she was in the audience at a Hitler speech. She survived the communist revolution in 1917. She fled with her first husband, George. That the marriage was annulled. No, his name was Boris. The son's name was George. And she was a celibate saintly woman and, and uh, the first white woman to minister to uh, urban blacks in Harlem and then in Toronto. And Eddie wrote two books about his wooing her and finally successfully getting her to marry him. Beautiful. He's a, do you love this guy? Um, Eddie Doherty, um, Gall and Honey. He wrote a magnificent short biography of, Ma- of Venerable Matt Talbot. Mm, yeah, of course. The Irish drunk who got sober sure. before AA. Patron so, of yep. alcoholics, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Yeah. So, but the second half of my sentence, unless you're praying, if you're not praying, then your faith becomes your hobby. And not your, the thing you'll walk the plank for. Mm. So, and that also goes to mindset. Um, I don't know the author and I'm, this is not an ad, but I'm, I'm reading a book that I will be rereading for some time. It's by Marianne Wenschel. Her website, I think is spiritfilledcatholic.com. Um, it's called Your Thoughts Are Killing You. And it's on, it's, a, it's extended study of mindset. Uh, your attitude toward your thoughts. Where do thoughts come from? Three main sources, your own nature. I have my thoughts about this, that, or the other. Your guardian angel, the Holy Spirit. God's mm-hmm. giving you thoughts. He's kind of, mm, to use a computer analogy, he's downloading ideas for you. Mm-hmm. Some, you I'm sure we've all had those little intuitions that, you know, didn't really come from you. A lot God of things. Links, right, little little, pulses. Right. Mm-hmm. And the devil, our enemy also tries to drop thoughts in there. And then we say this in the confetti, right? What's the first line? Mm-hmm. By the way, this is what I'm about to say is a really good apologetics zinger for people who say, Catholics are hypocrites. You go to church on Sunday and then you're a jerk for six days. I like to answer that with, uh, are you a hypocrite? Uh, uh, sometimes. Do you, do you publicly say you're a hypocrite? No, why would I do that? I have to. It's in the confetti, yeah, I confess. I confess to Almighty God and to you, you my, my brothers, brothers and sisters, sisters, that I have sinned. Where greatly in, sinned, greatly sinned, <laughs> right? Thank you. Greatly sinned. Yeah. Where? What's the first place you sin? In, in my, my thoughts, thoughts, in my words, words in what I've done, done and what I have failed, failed to do. do. Commission and omission, right? Yep. So it's all covered there. You have to publicly pronounce that you are in fact a hypocrite, and you're calling down God's mercy, and you're asking people to pray for you because you know you're. You're a work in progress. You're not quite there yet. My line to the to the hypocrite thing is always gym related. That's my little uh, retort. Which gymnasium is, or diminutive for James? <laughs> gymnasium, <laughs> Jimothy. The gymnasio. Yeah, uh, yeah, gymnasium. Which is, 
you know, think about that logic in a fitness scenario, right? Well, I went to the gym and I worked out real hard, Mm -hmm. you know, and then when I left the gym, I went to the mall later and I saw one of the people who I'd seen in the gym having ice cream. Right. Therefore, the gym is worthless, doesn't work. The quit. They're hypocrites. He like, likes Neapolitan when he should be lifting heavy. Right. I mean, so, so the idea that, you know, the church uh, is, the church isn't for me because the people who go to church then go out in the parking lot and yell at one another yeah. is akin to saying the gym is not for me because there are some people who are overweight who are there or worse, people who are fit who then leave and have ice cream. Mm-hmm. Like you wouldn't make that logical leap, but nevertheless, it's easier to yeah. deal with the church. Mm-hmm. Correcto. So our th- our th- some of our thoughts should be ignored because uh, they're not helpful, and other thoughts should be reduced. How do you ignore re- a thought? How do you, it, how, how do you, I, I'm asking because I don't know. How do you, how do you I replace it with another thought. Okay. Philippians chapter four is a manual on how to think. He says, think about, and he gives a list, what is pure, what is beautiful, what is lovely, what is holy. Think on those things. I've got a long list. And you and I were talking about gratitude and depression. You can't be depressed if you're grateful. Mm-hmm. There's oil and, wa- and oil and water. Yeah. If you're praying the rosary every day, if you're praying, whether, whether it's the Jesus prayer or the Divine Mercy Chaplet or Alexio Divina or just five minutes of adoration, if you've got that written down as a non-negotiable thing that you do, you're going to sin way less because you've planted like a telephone line. That's your, that's your pole and you've done it. And you know the next poll's coming the next day. Maybe that night if you do evening prayer, you know you're going to have to meet that poll. Why would you screw it up by sitting between then, then and now? Mm-hmm. No, you've already decided that that moment is my yes to prayer. It's imperfect prayer. It's, in my case, very distracted prayer. But that's why the psalm calls it, I think, a sacrifice of prayer. Mm-hmm. It's not reading a nice book in a, in a hammock prayer of prayer. It's a sacrifice. And if you're distracted, if you're thinking of 10,000 things, if the monkeys are making a lot of noise in your brain, okay, that's okay. Don't fight it. Just sit with it. Lord, I'm really distracted, but I'm here with you. I'm hanging out. I don't have much to say, but I'm saying yes to this because I'm saying no to a whole bunch of other things. Mm. So thoughts that can be ignored, I think they have to be crowded out with other things. And it's easy to do that. Bishop Sheen always said that like addiction to alcohol, he was way ahead of his time. and, And this is in life is worth living, but also the book version of it, that um, addictions have to be crowded out by a stronger love, mm. which is why adoration is the cure for all, for all addictions. From porn, from porn to drugs to everything else, because you, you can't white knuckle it and, and let go of your false idols yeah. if they've got their hooks in you, if it involves the brain chemistry <clears throat> and neural pathways that are all messed up. You need to be marinated in the presence of the one who made you who can never stop loving you and whose decision to save you was already made 2000 years ago. So as there's a book, don't remember the author, but I like the title. I've used it in several different versions. God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Your arms are too short to box with that. Yeah, exactly. Just give up trying. There's nothing you can do about it. I also like the Jesuit principle of, or I don't know how ancient this is, of agere contra. To do the opposite. Yeah, do the opposite. Uh-huh. Right. So this is sort of a variation of the just replace the thought with something else, right? You're feeling anxious. Go run a mile. You know, Get out of your thoughts. Get out of your thoughts. Uh, you want to have uh, that cupcake. 
go brush your teeth and clean the windows. Like mm-hmm. complete, just the opposite of what the thing is. Yeah. Or even- It is maybe, a question of replacement. Maybe opposite is not diametric opposite. Maybe it's sideways opposite. Yeah. Like let's say, okay, you're a porn addict and there's the lure of whatever porn you're into. Rather than think thoughts of chastity and the blessed virgin, which I guess would be the opposite, do something sideways. Uh, put the kettle on, start, a, start your favorite cup of tea, mm-hmm. make the perfect chai. You're already shifting your mind to something that's lovely and comforting without illicit comfort. Like if you, uh, oh, I can't, I can't run, I can't go to the gym. Well, the act of putting one sneaker on, that starts the flow. For sure. I've, I've heard it said, I've never witnessed this, but I understand a really good trainer dealing with someone who's very obese that wants to lose weight and knows it's a long marathon. They show up, they got their gear on and they show up to the gym and, and the home. trainer gives them a big hug. Awesome. See you tomorrow. Great job. Isn't that great? It's amazing. It's That's, true. It's the mindset of I showed up <laughs> requirement number one. So, sure. so don't make the perfect, the enemy of the good. Mm. What more, else? more mindset. Anything else for mindset? Productivity. Um, You're big on that. I'm remember. really big on, yeah, yeah. I've you, learned. You, what was that book you recommended years ago to me? The, 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 what was it? It was getting, about, getting things done. Getting things done. The Art of Stress-Free Productivity yeah. by a guy I've interviewed named David Allen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lives in the Netherlands now. Watch David's speech to the uh, Google execs. Life changer. His book's a little complicated for me. Um, I'm, I've Hard since- to believe. Well, I'm, I need things simple and easy. I'm moderate to severe ADHD traits. So I'm, I'm, by the way, ADHD, stupidest title ever. I do not have an attention deficit. I have an attention overload. Yeah. Attention amplification disorder. Yeah, exactly. I've always felt since puberty, maybe earlier than that, that my, my brain is like a a Ferrari without brakes, but that comes with a blessing too, which is the ability to hyper-focus. I can go nine hours on a project. I don't need to eat. I just want to siphon off that thing and get things done that way. Um, I'm a big fan of the bullet journal designed by writer Carol, the bullet journal. It's a time management system. Does it have to do with bullets? I love uh, bullets. No, bullet points. That's what I mean. Yeah, exactly bullets, right. Yeah. yeah, Bujo. It's a whole movement, the mm-hmm. Bujo movement. Um, I've interviewed writer as well. And if I could put yeah. in a little plug for an app mm-hmm. that I use called Workflowy, which is all yeah. bullets. Oh, Wordflowy. Yeah, yeah that's also bullet, bullet design. Bullet points. Mm-hmm. I'm so addicted to this scratching things out on your little to-do oh, list that amazing. I will do something, just then, then write it down oh, and scratch it, baby. <laughs> little little uh, endorphin drum. That's one of the squirt. reasons I like this little app. All you do is put bullets, then you can nest bullets within bullets, and then you can obviously cross them off and it takes them away. And it's just bliss. Yeah. Bliss. So one of the insights from David Allen, which is very applicable to the bullet journal method, is... The idea, it's a wonderful analogy of the human person with a computer. Mm. It says that the, the soul of the person is like the CPO, it's the tower. It's the repository of the deepest part of, the you inside you is like the tower in this analogy. The present moment is like the screen. It's ephemeral, it's, it's minute by minute, it's changes, it's not, it doesn't have the permanence of, this, of, the, of the tower. So what's the interface between the tower and the screen? RAM. RAM. Random access memory. How does RAM work best? When it's empty. Decluttered. So if you- Write things down. If it's not written down, it doesn't exist. So the bullet journal is a way to get the things out of your head so your RAM is as close to zero as possible because, and here's the line that David Allen uses. I don't, I would love to give credit where it's due. Our minds were made to come up with ideas, not to keep them. 
Beautiful. Yeah, they're not storage. They're right, creation. not storage. Right. Yeah. Storage is your journal. Yeah, that was a revelation to me when you shared it with me a long time ago. Because you think of the practical benefits of jotting things down. Mm-hmm. Recollection, efficiency, you'll be able to get things done, blah, blah, blah. But one of the benefits is itself the writing. You get it down, that means you take it out of your RAM, and then your bandwidth opens up, and your mental faculties can be used for the purposes that they were intended mm-hmm. for, right? Creation, communication, that kind of thing. That was a revelation to me. Yeah, Because me too. up until that point, you know, list writing was, was a task meant to be strictly efficient, not as a way to actually gain mental bandwidth. Like I didn't never understood that concept. Mm-hmm. That was a big eye opener for me. Yep. Yep. Me too. There's one last thought on that. Oh, rewards. Hmm. Uh, I was watching an Andrew Huberman episode on rewards and most advice given about rewards to do with time management and being more productive is give yourself a reward at 2 PM so that you've got this thing looming like the carrot on the, at the end of the stick uh, I'm going to have the perfect cup of chai. I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to read my favorite book. That's your reward. He says that he doesn't recommend that you stop doing that, but a more uh, effective way of rewarding yourself is to reward yourself in the moment that you're overcoming something unpleasant. Now, you and I have talked about the Bring Sally Up push-up challenge that I'm, I'm a huge fan of. It's a great upper bring body Sally strength. Up, bring, bring Sally Up, Bring Sally down. down. Yeah, dumbest song, super easy and simple, but it's hard. David Goggins almost doesn't make it in, in his first shot. But in the middle of the, of the push-up that you're doing that you don't want to do because you don't think you can, and yet you're doing it, you're telling yourself, I'm getting through this. That provides a little dopamine squirt. Mm. That's a serotonin release. Mm. It's in a microdose. It's like you feel good that you're vanquishing in that moment. Yeah. And it also reduces anxiety because you don't have room. You know, ain't nobody got time for that when you're trying to get through something difficult and painful. And finally, I never thought I'd be saying this because I never thought I could do it. I always thought it was beyond me, impossible. I'll never do it. It's like 10,000 daggers in my back. Heroin. <laughs> no, that wasn't, where that wasn't where you're going. Go ahead. Cold showers. Mm. Cold showers. That's my Friday penance. Has been for years. Uh, the only day I don't have, take them is Sunday in honor of the resurrection. You take them every day? I take them every day. I have not had a warm shower regularly since February two years ago. You know, I, I can imagine people in developing nations hearing this and going, guys, I've been doing this my whole, know, exactly. wait, there's <laughs> warm water. There's hot. Can't you see uh, the sarcastic clap? I used to go to Columbia <laughs> every summer and like, we'd go to my, my uncle's, you know, houses and my cousin's houses and, mm-hmm. you know, especially in the fincas and the ranches where you'd go off for the weekend or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yep. Every shower was mm-hmm. cold. Everyone. Yep. That's mm-hmm. just the way it was. I finally got the uh, the cojones, speaking of uh, mm-hmm. Colombian expressions, uh, by watching Vim, uh, Vim Hof. Vim Hof, not familiar. Oh, W-I-M-H-O-F. Vim Hof is uh, he's called the Iceman. He does uh, endurance oh. training. He's got a Guinness Book of Records for Just longest like, swim under underwater in frozen yeah. temperatures. He, he climbed to Mount Everest in a t-shirt. Intense. Yeah, intense. yeah. So he teaches his method and it's uh, it's quite something combined with breathing. I also don't breathe through my mouth anymore. I nose breathe only. I actually tape my mouth every night because our, our, our nasal passages were not, were, were designed to warm and purify the air. And I, I, I'm, I'm very seriously considering the turbinate surgery 
or whatever it is to open these baskets. Right. Like a deviated septum. Oh, right. I've got an elongated palate. I've got asthma. Yeah. I've got allergies. Do you have I've sleep get, apnea? I have sleep apnea. Have you tried mouth taping? I haven't, but I'd like to have both of my nostrils work before I do that. They literally, sure. one literally does not work. And that could be atrophy. It could be, to your point. It's a good thing to follow up on. Uh, there's also a book by um, Paul Ehrlich and someone else. It's called Jaws. Mm-hmm. It's on how uh, we, for, for too many generations, we've been giving ourselves and our children soft food for too long. We don't chew, th- chew with yeah, something substantial. And so our jaw lines are really weak. You can actually change it with uh, one of those, those mm-hmm. things that you. That's another like thing that weightlifting helps, by the way, is because you clench your teeth, you clench your yep. jaw, mm-hmm. you exercise the mandibular yep. region. Yep. So if you look up um, nose breathing, there are two, two gurus on that but I won't mention their names because it'll it, seem like it, I'm showing off. I, I've done some of the research around. I mean, it's clear that we were designed by God to breathe through our noses. I mean, mm-hmm. and the benefits are infinitely more. Yeah. Um, Nitric oxide produced in your nasal passages. It's the only molecule that's found in your entire body. The discoverers won the Nobel Prize. It's, uh, wow. it's a vasodilator and it's awesome. And you get uh, a, a strengthened version of that when you nose breathe only. Even when you're working out. That takes a while because it, it feels so unnatural. <laughs> well, I can't do it. Now you probably can't do it right now. Pre, you know, pre-treatment. Pre-treatment. I'll try it. Tape my mouth shut. My wife might like yeah. that. Actually, you know, I actually don't talk that much, so. I'm no, easy. That's not what I've heard. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> also no snoring. Kills, just kills off snoring. Yeah. The snoring uh, I've been contending with for a while. Um, so mindset is kind of my new, I love my, the new my new thing. circus. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I think it's beautiful. And it probably has a lot, you know, we were talking about the positive, affirmative, life-giving kind of nature of it relative to a lot of other fare that's out there, which, you know, is more culture warry, et cetera, that even if you're on the winning side, nevertheless, mm-hmm. oftentimes leaves a lot of carnage. Sometimes mm-hmm. even your own carnage in the process, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a battlefield that you're in. And so I, I love this. I love the mindset thing. I think that's really, really cool. When does that of, kick off in earnest or has it well, already? Of course, we're recording this. So the internet's quasi forever. Um, if people want to stay in touch at patrickcoffin.media, it'll all be there. It'll be a community. It'll be people who are rowing in the same direction. Not necessarily Catholic. It's Catholic insofar as I am. But I, I don't, I don't like the sharp elbowed public public debate stuff where uh, you see this a lot. And I'm not blaming people like Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson, whom I consider a friend. But there are people that create their own parasitic videos on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Watch Ben Shapiro crush, crush liberal libtard. Yeah. Oh, do you want to convert these people or do you want to be Captain Superior? You, and, you have to pick one. And now with the graphic treatments too, the thumbnails all have that sort of similar design. It's like, you know, it, it, it's, it's really, it's taken on a very, um, a very coarse. Tone. Uber polarized. Uber with, polarized. With the, the red. Exactly. With the zinger, the laser <laughs> right. eyes. Yeah. Ask you know? yourself, how many times have you ever been, if you're conservative and you're listening right now, have you ever been converted to liberalism by a liberal meme that mocks your side and vice versa? Not going to happen. Negatory. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely not an effective apologetic. Um, 
Great to have you on the show. Patrick. I've learned a lot from this conversation. So have and I. mainly so have I. how to model civil loving disagreement and openness to take next steps and maybe <sighs> revisit topics in the future. Well, that's the thing is you are a lovely person and you're a big hearted person and I love you a lot and I have for a while and you know that. I and, do know that. Um, and you know it's mutual. Of course. And so um, you can have disagreements with other people. We should not discard others. Um, and hopefully this conversation has been, has shown that in evidence and the direction that you're heading in now suits you because I think it highlights some of that natural, those characteristics that you have, the gentleness that you have, the comedy that you have, the ability to really bring people along and make them think and make them, you know, wonder and help build them up and help bring them forward. Those are all awesome traits that you have naturally which I think have led in large part to a lot of the visibility and success that you've had in your career. So keep doing that. You know, we need it. And all my opinions are correct. You forgot that part. That part I will leave out. Well, we'll, we'll include it. But Do you remember the New Yorker magazine uh, cartoons? I one mean, the, I know of them, but I don't you know that genre of, of absurdist humor. I do. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorites is, um, no, you know what? It's not, it's a, it's a Jack. It's a deep thought by Jack Handy. Oh, that of course I yeah. know. And it's, uh, what if two heads of state after a long, terrible war just sat down and to write terms of peace and one looks up at the other just before he signs and says, wait, I thought we won. <laughs> Jack and <laughs> deep, deep thoughts. thoughts. Got to bring that back. Beautiful. All right, Patrick. Thanks Coffin. again, Charlie, for the, for the invite. Thank you for coming Thank by. you for your diaconate and your, your holy ordered, sorry, your consecrated life and your uh, magnificent marriage i reread dazzled when i was moving recently and all the stuff that jumped out of the page on the second read that was like interesting the first time because i know jessica's story and i've loved and known and admire you guys for so many years but reading it again it's called dazzled you didn't ask me to bring this up talk about mindset and overcoming a 360 degrees experience for years of being punched in the face metaphorically and otherwise and bouncing upward by God's grace. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, no, she is uh, an inspiration to me. I appreciate that. All right, folks. Uh, yeah, and you're welcome back, obviously, anytime. So let's do this again. Um, and we'll have all the information that we can in the show notes so people can keep tabs, especially those who don't know you. And there may be a fair bit here on this show who, who don't. Uh, thank you for coming by. Really appreciate it. If you're thank listening you, to our you. conversation, our voice, that means it's time to subscribe to the show. Share this episode. Man, we covered a lot of stuff from uh, sleep apnea to anti-popes to whatever you, uh, to J Ricky Gervais and British comedy and all kinds of obscurity. I'm sure there's something in there for your loved one. Share the show. Help it to grow. We'll see you again next time on Living the Call. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.